It's the Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. We're in season two, covering the top 100 albums of the 1970s. And now your hosts, John, Josh, and Matt. From the undisclosed location that is the taping ground of the Combing the Stacks music podcast, this is John introducing the second to last episode, as Matt would say, the penultimate uh, episode of the Coming to Stacks Music Podcast. I'm going to check in with Matt and Josh here in a second, uh, but let me tell you, we have a great show tonight. Let me run a little bit of the, uh, I'm trying to get to this quicker and quicker each week, and so I'm kind of not doing as smooth an intro as I'm used to. I want to introduce the fact that we're on 14 different platforms for your listening pleasure at YouTube, on the Coming to Stacks Music Podcast, on Twitter, at Coming the... We'll be planning for the 80s, which are coming soon, and we may have more venues coming there, but we're really excited. We want you to listen in bite-sized pieces or whole meals, and speaking of whole snacks, Josh, how are you over there? He's the whole snack of this podcast. (laughs) I'm doing doing well. It's been a real mixed bag this week because uh, my coffee maker died, but... um... I, I, I want to, you know, I'm the industrious type, so I'm trying to take it apart, but Cuisinart does not want me to take it apart. It's been really difficult. So I'm about to just call the whole thing off. And, uh, but and I'm drinking just a beer. not drink coffee? No, no. Or a new buy a new coffee. Yeah, okay, I was about to say. I'm not sure. we have. Mm. And then uh, drinking a beer. The weather is really nice this week. It's 70 here. And yeah, can't complain. Good albums this week, too. There we go. Well, and, and we had the whole snack there, and then a, a light bite 
Pepper it's tea. Matt. <laughs> yes. That was very Matt. that was very uh, uh, detailed, Josh. Thank you for that. Um, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Good luck Welcome. with your coffee maker. I am doing well as as well. Um, I, I, I'm going to give you a little synopsis. Last week I was, I was listening it. and I was just like, I'm good. And that was it. So um, <laughs> yeah. I think people might, might want more into the life of Matt. Um, mm, I don't know. I, no, they do. I've gotten a lot of feedback. I've got a lot of emails, like personal emails that people said, okay. we want to know more about you. Um, <laughs> okay. I started wow, okay. running. I started, I got, I got back into the run game now that the snow's gone. Excellent. And, uh, so I feel good about that. I'm excited about baseball. Um, you know, we didn't, we haven't talked about that, but, uh, playing baseball's or coming around the corner. Uh, uh, watching. I playing. You guys. We played softball together. I could not field a fly ball to save my life. I don't know why you guys put me in right field and left field and stuff. I was like, can I just play like third base or, I don't know, catcher or something? I can't. I could not judge a fly ball to save my life. I believe life. Josh had catcher mandate right there, so there was at least uh, yeah one. At least two other spots. But you were short field, right? For those that are softball enthusiasts, slightly different than. Right field, yeah. right. I, I, yeah. I. Later on, I was third base, and I felt much more caught. Even though I could not throw a guy out at first to save my life, but I could, I could get in front of a ball and stop it. So, um, well, I got, I had that going. The for expectations me. were low for our team. Let's be honest. Yeah, but we won the championship. That's true. So. Based on everything you guys just said, you would think that we were like the worst team. I would like to say <laughs> that I was a perfectly cromulent softball player myself. So, unlike the rest of these jerk offs, I was I, out there. I was uh, never holding as good my as anybody, is anybody surprised that John would crown himself as the uh, as the ultimate softball player on our team? I don't think I, I said he was the ultimate. I found out this. Well, isn't week that, that what, a, what does cromulent mean though? Let's go back. Let's go backwards. What does that mean, John? Because that average. Okay, I would agree with satisfactory. Really, satisfactory. satisfactory. It's probably a little better than that. You know what I mean? Satisfactory. Yeah. You know, so I always liked it when John got testy with the umps. Come on, blue. (laughs) You got to let him know who's boss. You know, this week, guys, I found out from a colleague that a former supervisor of mine once referred to dealing with me as learning how to work with an alpha. That was something that was a real thing that was said this week. So I want wow. you guys to share maybe the trials and tribulations, I guess, of my of working with me and my alpha status, guys. So well, I, I don't know at- if it comes across on the podcast. No, nah, so. I, 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 I I've never seen that at all. What's between alpha and beta? I feel like that's what I am. Like, there isn't I'm, really anything, is I'm there? I'm like an alpha beta really <laughs> Alpha beta. isn't that the, the that's the uh fraternity and yeah. the uh it, yeah and, uh, uh, revenge of the nerds right the no, alpha that's, betas that's fine uh that's tri-delt or no lambda mu lambda 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 yeah and yeah what's the what's the the alpha betas isn't it i don't remember yeah okay i can't yeah, remember I mean, this i'm still yeah, we're all yeah. the jocks are so maybe i'm that's the omnicron well, <laughs> well, there are there depending on what Greek letter you do. There's uh, all kinds of different letters this week that could be used to describe uh, the albums. This week, each week, I I alternate between who gets to run them at the beginning and then who gets to introduce the ones next week. I think this week it is Matt's turn to run the albums that we're going to be covering this week. So, Matt, it's actually like five albums this week, isn't it? Kind it of. It sure is. Sure. We got two double mm-hmm. albums. Yeah, but we're going to start you off nice and easy. We're going to come in slow with uh, a regular album, Super Tramps Breakfast in America. And Josh will be covering that. And then I'm going to follow up with uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, which comes in at a whopping 80, just over 80 minutes. Um, yeah. It's an hour and 20 minutes, or an hour and 20 minutes for those that that, that, that need that. And then uh, John's going to wrap it all up with The Clash and London Calling, which is just over an hour. So mm-hmm. uh, and the, yeah, those two are uh, double albums, guys. One is a rock opera concept album. It so. is. 
correct. It's been a while since we've delved into the. Uh, mm-hmm. We've done some concept albums recently, but it's been a while since we've been in the rock opera. I the believe last, last one, one was uh, Quadrophenia right? or Meatloaf. Is the Meatloaf considered? Yeah, I guess it would be. Considered that could be. Yeah. Potentially. Genesis uh, Lem lies down, but that was like seventy-five. When was Quadrophenia? Uh, earlier than that. Nineteen seventy-three. Seventy-three. Yeah. Okay. So it could have been so, Lamb, the Lamb. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it it's a dying. This. It's a dying art. The the uh, the rock opera. Well, is, well remember yeah. we talked about the difference between the rock opera and the song cycle, right? That was a discussion oh, in a much earlier episode. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So maybe maybe the Meatloaf album is more of a song cycle than a rock opera, as I remember it. But anyway, I, we'll I do- don't know. I'm gonna push back on that. I mean, I think it was made for the stage, wasn't it? And then they made it into the album, or at the same time, simultaneously. Uh, I think when we covered that, it, it wasn't necessarily made for the stage. I think it just... We never... It, yeah, that was a cool... We didn't really cover it in terms of bio, but I remember looking up and I, I think it was more just... It was kind of one of those those albums that was kicked around a lot, like who was going to do it and where it was going to be recorded and the genesis of it. It's it's kind of like if you ever heard about that song Believe by Cher, that it existed for years and years before anybody recorded it and just kept getting redone and remade and then eventually just ended up somehow being sung by Cher and super produced and hmm. it became a, I wouldn't say the meatloaf album was like that but it, it, in terms of the intensity of and length but it had elements like that where it was around and then well, suddenly got made well according to wikipedia if you're going to go by that mm-hmm. the the the, yeah. the term rock opera does not appear for bad out of hell yeah. uh but musical does it does say it's it's, okay. it's okay. kind of like a music it's developed from a musical mm-hmm. so um I don't know. I'm going to say no. I'm going to go with Josh on this. I, th- I don't think that's a rock opera, because Wikipedia would tell me if it was. So, well, aren't well Josh was saying it was a rock opera? opera, wasn't it? Oh, you were, Josh. Yes, I was. I'm confused. That. Yeah. <laughs> and I was saying song cycle, but then Josh said it was made for the stage, which could be a musical as well. So, and song cycle could... does not pe- appear here either. So, I don't okay. know. Gotcha. Semantics. Okay. Well, well. We'll figure it all out as we go along. Well, we've got <laughs> we've got lots of other stuff that we're going to cover yeah. tonight. One of which is a little bit of history. And Matt, this has been pretty much a steady segment right here. So let's play into your segment. And on the other end of it, we'll hear you. Yeah, I like this segment. This is a nice little segment here. I'm not going to repeat the date because last time I did that, I was I was accused of being uh, superfluous. So. Um, nineteen fifty six sixty six years ago Elvis Presley released his first his debut album his self titled album uh in mono on r c a vicar um, it's a shame have, we never heard of him again yeah have you yeah, guys he, seen the uh trailer for Baz Luhrmann's elvis biopic thing that no. he's doing no it's crazy I mean the guy looks like good as elvis um but Baz, you know Baz Luhrmann, he's he's very yeah, full of spectacle and yep yeah, the so. crappy Romeo and Juliet. I believe he's responsible crappy. for both Come of those on. things, right? That's, good. That's a good one. I think <laughs> if I made a list of worst movies ever, Moulin Rouge would oh, be in man. my top ten. Here we go. I, in fact, I don't think I know Moulin Rouge <laughs> should be in my top ten. Yeah. Um, the uh, Elvis Presley album was the first million-selling album of the oh. uh, of the genre. Oh wait, real quick too. Didn't he also just absolutely destroy The Great Gatsby as well? Wasn't he? Oh, I didn't see that also. as well. Oh, I think that might have been even worse than Moulin Rouge. So, and since that's one of my favorite novels, I felt I had to at least also throw in that disgrace of a movie. But continue. Josh, do you have, do you have a retort, Josh? 
Actually, surprisingly, I haven't seen that movie. It's one of the oh. more popular ones I haven't seen. They somehow got all of the casting right and still managed to screw it up, which yeah. is really a testament to... That's impressive. You know, it's a feat in itself. Leo and Carey Mulligan that you would... And Tobey Maguire's perfect as well for all the characters, but mm-hmm. just mm. didn't happen. Hmm. So. Anyway, uh, 50 years ago, in 1972, the film of the concert for Bangladesh featuring George Harrison, Bob Dylan, and Eric Clapton premiered in New York, and the event was the first benefit concert of this magnitude in, in, in history. It raised $243 million, uh, no wait, $243,000, I'm sorry, at the time. And, uh, and I also, it reminded me, one week earlier, The Godfather was released. I know it's not music related, but The Godfather is mm. 50 years old as well, so right around that time of... One of the concert most for famous American movies of all time, probably. Yeah, if that was a good way one. Back... When... Continue. Sorry. No, I was going to say, John, you liked that one, right? That's better than. Of that's course. Better or worse than? <laughs> I actually um, liked Mulan all Rouge. three. I actually liked all three Godfathers, even the third one. So. Oh wow. Yep. Better or worse that. than Mulan? I mean, come on. Let's let's not even. <laughs> Why waste people's time? Yeah. <laughs> Can I also add? I I posted a clip way back in the day of that Bangladesh concert when we did All Things Must mm-hmm. Pass. I believe it was. If not for you, I believe was the clip that I posted of okay. George Harrison on that one. So if you want to go way back and scan our tweets, um, you'll, you could find that from, gosh, over a, almost a year ago. I think is when that would have been dropped. A real long time ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thirty-seven years ago in nineteen eighty-five, former Credence Clearwater Revival frontman John Fogerty went on to number one with on the U.S. album charts with his third solo studio album, Centerfield. Talking about baseball, there you go. Centerfield, oh, yeah. Josh, do you, know, you ever Classic. hear Centerfield? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love it. I think that's got um, Old Man I Down do the Road. I do not love that. Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> uh, come oh. on, John. Put me in, Coach. No. That, I, I believe that album also has the uh, song Old Man Down the Road, which was the song that the record company Yes. sued him for plagiarizing himself which sounds like run through the jungle i love that story mm. i think um, you're right yep I 37 mean, cla- you- oh, go what, ahead josh what, what a classic baseball song i mean come on yeah top like, john there, top five baseball many, songs so. of all time let's go come on top it's five be- baseball songs of all time <laughs> that song the strokes did last year about the mets oh, ode, to the mets. ode to the mets that would be high on that one take so. me out to the ball game that's number one <laughs> That's that's probably that's bad. Uh, right, Mrs. Robinson has a Joe DiMaggio reference, right? Where did she go, Joe? While we're DiMaggio? reaching here, yeah. So I can keep thinking if I. What about if I that want song to. that plays over the credits of the Springfield uh, Simpsons baseball episode? <laughs> I think of like there's a lot of songs from like the 20s. Yeah. You know, 20s ragtime songs are probably where the vast majority she of those, those sideburns, Mattingly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A uh, couple more here. 1985, 37 years ago, Billy Joel married model Christy Brinkley on a boat moored alongside the Statue of Liberty. They divorced. Probably the in best thing Billy Joel ever did. Yeah. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> he has a divorced. little bit of a ladies. I, I remember reading that he was dating somehow Christy Brinkley and Elle McPherson at the same time, which is remarkable. It's impressive. Um, it real and like prime versions of both. Not even like you know. You know, when they're both older, you know what I mean? And I mean, I'm talking, he's like, you know, right there. So, good. I mean, good on Billy Joel for that. Man, we could do a so. whole episode on that. Do you think Al McPherson was heartbroken when he went with Christy Brinkley? I don't know. I yeah. think I, I don't know. That's a good question. Like, if you have to choose between those two, my God, it's a, it's a. You can't go wrong, John. There. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's a good, it's a, it's a good problem to have. 
Yeah. So, but that's yeah. I remember Bring reading the whole the story about. Come on. Yeah, L. <laughs> L. L. McPherson. Please come on our podcast to talk about Christy Brinkley, the, L. McPherson. If you're listening, yeah, come and clean the stacks, please. <laughs> we promise not to objectify you since we were probably three years old when this was happening. So, yeah. yeah. I was uh, I was older. I was seven. Uh, in 2011, 11 years ago, the Who's Pete Townsend told Uncut Magazine that he regretted ever forming the band. <laughs> Said, "quote What would I have I hope done I die before, before I get old." <laughs> Is that Townsend, the quote? That would be awesome yeah. if it was. Yeah. No, it's, he says, "What would I have done differently? I would never have joined a band, even though I am quite a good gang member and a good trooper on the road. I am bad at creative collaboration." Mm, that did that did uh, square up with those who bios I did back in the day. Yeah, that tracks. They were they were always fighting each. Well, actually, in fairness, all of them were kind of bad collaborative band members. So I don't know if Pete Townsend stood out as mm. the worst. You know, Daltrey. I think for a while there was probably the hardest. He's brawling with everybody. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think if you're in a band, you have to be have like a vision for the band? Can't you just like play the drums and like not chime in? Or is that <laughs> so the guy who like is writes that, like, the not songs. What the people, people. Well, you know, every band's got a creative engine. You know, it's kind of yeah. like I. I think that I also think it's hard to be around people that long and not yeah. to some degree just not want to see their face for a while. So. Yeah, I wonder if it's just more about being annoyed at the other people versus the actual music. But is that going to be like our podcast? <laughs> I mean, it's in many ways, even something as benign of this, we have creative differences sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so true. you can only imagine if we're trying to make our grand work of art. Because we're all alphas, that's why. Yeah, we keep, we, we is, keep yeah. all of our arguments like in-house, though. We don't ever broadcast <laughs> them. So you guys, the listeners, don't know yes, how much. Yes, because so many people would want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> We've been through, yeah. <laughs> and a chapter of- three of my autobiography updating <laughs> the spreadsheet <laughs> a couple birthdays today uh rick okasik would have turned 78 mm. years old today born in 1944 i don't um, love these birthdays for folks that are dead unfortunately it's just you think depressing. I, well yeah i suppose so but it, I, I, yeah there's i didn't have a whole lot it was just him and uh, uh born in 1953 turning 69 today happy birthday chaka khan Nice. Oh, Chicago. nice. Okay. Now when we, we covered, covered a couple weeks ago, cold mm-hmm. not takes, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So should I not? You, no more birthdays of people that no, are dead, you can. John. It's your segment, so I just think it for is. me personally, it's a little depressing. It's a little downer. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So. Yeah. Especially with my obituaries that always end up happening. Yeah, yeah yours, we're, we're yours good for at least are. we're good for at least three to four deaths every episode. <laughs> yeah. You it sure are. Less, it should be less and less, but I, I guess that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> the 90s is going to ruin that for us. So, yeah, unfortunately. So, any other tidbits in there, Matt? That's it. I am done. That's it. All right. So, we now know all the history of this entire week in music yep. ever. So, <laughs> yeah. you can rest assured you're now caught up. Well, just that. today, John. Okay. Fair enough. Well,. Along with some history, we also do some cleaning, and uh, the cleaning is going to be handled this week by uh, <laughs> the resident French maid of the podcast, Josh. So, Josh, after Outcast sings us in, do your thing. All right, just got some interesting uh, facts this week, and uh, I saw that. Dolly Parton rejected her oh, yeah. consideration for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I thought was pretty interesting. She it's pretty she, rock and roll, isn't it, yeah. Josh? She said she doesn't, quote, I don't feel I have that, I've earned that right. So I thought that was 
that was uh you know tying in with we always mention the rock and roll hall of fame more frequently at least and i think they need to change the name of the rock and roll hall of fame you know because there's plenty of artists that are in there that probably aren't quote-unquote rock and roll yeah and genres are going to get even less and less rock and roll as time goes on so <laughs> yeah. i think yeah i think they got to change that name Jan we'll Leonard, get on it change the sign and yeah it'll be crazy but the Baby Boomer's it. Guide to Popular Music, 1950 <laughs> yeah. to 2000. 79. That's what you call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 79 with select cultural acts to make sure that we don't see that we're too you too. sexist, racist, homophobic, <laughs> insert. Yeah. Yeah, with, yeah, with you. Now with more, 15% more you too. Uh, I thought this was fun. Daddy Yankee attire, announces he's retiring. Daddy Yankee, the, the king of all <laughs> yes. daddies, the king of reggaeton. Yeah, he yes. is, uh, <laughs> Gasolina being his probably most popular song. That's a banger if you've never heard it. Yeah, yeah. How does how does one announce their retirement? Did he do it as like a reggaeton song, which would be the best way and I think the most appropriate way for him to go out? Well, he... he made a video and posted on youtube so okay that's, that's how he did it and that's how you do it these uh, his days, yeah. uh his new album that comes out in a couple days is called legend daddy which i thought was hilarious mm-hmm. and, okay uh, <laughs> so uh he's yeah popular he sold more than 30 million records so i thought that was real. oh and also he's on despacito which is was a gigantic mm-hmm. song when it came out in 2017 it sure was it yeah. sure was <laughs> yeah He's kind of like, uh, in some ways, he he held the same lean as like Bad Bunny does now, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Not yeah. the same music, but yeah, it's like sort of his massive selling. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That could I? He's like the type of guy that sold tons of albums and very much is on our radar. But you could see someone in exactly the same period of life as us, like having absolutely no idea who he is, right? Even right. yeah, so for sure. And mm-hmm. then finally, I am wanted to chime in. I am reading the, uh, as I alluded to, you know, many episodes ago, I'm reading Please Kill Me, The Uncensored Oral History of Punk. And Mm. boy, howdy, let me tell you, that book, I'm about halfway through, and it is extremely entertaining. I I don't know how much of it is true. I'm constantly questioning (laughs) the people that are giving Mm. these... uh, accounts of things, but I guess Iggy Pop is lucky to be alive based on what I'm reading so far. Oh, and... that comes out not just in that book and <laughs> all kinds of different. He shows up. He's like, uh, he's like the Zapruder film of like people <laughs> yeah. that are like bad, you know, bad behavior. He did um, so many drugs, and uh, actually, a lot of people in that book have done drugs. And I'm glad that I have started reading it after we listened to the albums because it made me appreciate it. A whole lot more not only the stooges but television patty smith and uh, lou reed and velvet underground and a lot of other people that we've covered and i think will soon appear in my reading will uh I, appear i gotta give iggy pop credit man for as, as much of a drug addict as he was as he was he looked pretty good like he's always he always cut with his you know his shirt off and stuff he he does it right. He does the drug thing well, but then he takes care of himself at the same time. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, he's just one of those freaks of nature, I think. Yeah, genetics and just it's also I think now Josh, you may finally appreciate what I was talking about on those Iggy Pop solo albums like just when you can sing about sleaze in a certain way where it isn't just singing about it, but <laughs> yeah. a truly worn-in idea of yeah. what it is. Yes, that's why his albums always sound so vibrant to me, I think. So. It's a, it's a, yeah. It, I re, I really recommend the book if especially if you're a fan of this era of music that we've I think all three of us are and and these bands um I think it's essential reading ultimately. Yeah. 
John uh, yeah. li- John likes his sleaze uh, authentic and believable. I do. It's, I mean, yeah, you have to. Kind <laughs> don't of, fake you know? that. I'm, don't fake I, that around yeah. John. He he doesn't like it. In fairness, I think we all do, right? You don't want an authentic <laughs> sleaze. So, uh, I did pick up the book Major Labels as well, a book about uh, several different genres of music as well as. Uh, sort of the industry history of how they were marketed and stuff. And I will be giving my book report in a few weeks. Um, I'd also like to quickly, before I, can I jump in on your segment here, Josh? Yeah, I'm done. Yep. Okay. Uh, I'd like to also give a shout out to all the Bee Gees fans that continue to flood our clip of (laughs) main course by the Bee Gees. Perhaps no, no YouTube clip that we've ever put up has generated more strongly negative feedback, has, have these people actually Gigi gotten Smith? to my I, take because i liked i love that i album. i don't think they did matt because <laughs> i i have a greater appreciation for bg's fans fervor i would say because they're not the only band that we may not have loved their work right but they're really the only band whose fans have just come at it over even the Joni mitchell fans that that did not love the takes. I kind of understood it a little more because Matt was a little bit trolling the Joni Mitchell fans at times. I think, I don't think we really Unintentionally. were with the Bee Gees. Yes, but I, I uh, so shout out to Bee Gees fans. I, I give you guys a lot of credit. You really, really <laughs> love the Bee Gees. And one thing you really, really want us to know is that most of that Bee Gees album main course is not disco with a capital not. Now, I would argue that I don't know what part of that album you are listening to where the first three tracks are there because if, <laughs> yeah. if, if, you, if you don't hear them as disco, I'm not sure what they're supposed to be, but God bless you. I understand. We, I think we even mentioned the fact that the disco was only there for the first couple tracks before it went into more standard issue pop, but yeah, something tells what, me that. What some, did they classify it as? Uh, it's a, you know, there's a lot of different feedback. So I, I would just say, <laughs> make your way over to our YouTube account and you can sort of see at, at, I'm trying to interact, but the, the comments are coming fast and furious. And wow. unfortunately, I did have to, for the first time, guys, I did have to deny a comment on one of our things, which has been almost a year and a half since wow. we were there. But, uh, was it really like was, crass and like, like were they death was, threats and stuff? Or I don't think was it was something I wanted underneath one of our videos. Okay. Let's put it that wow. way. So, Is it some sort of Russian see. troll? Uh, well, those are there all the time, you know what yeah. I mean? And so they disappear. So does that's this, a different. Does this no, mean this we've made it? Isn't this, <laughs> is, isn't this like good? Like if we get comments like that, isn't that uh, what so. the internet's I, all I about? Find, I find it that a passionate discourse, which, well, you know, I would say to those respectful in most of our videos, but yeah, I'd say to those BGs fans, keep listening. Cause I think I have the third take on that. And I was very uh, effusive about that record. So, uh, I'm a fan. I'm on your side, BGs, BGs fans. And yeah, we're and not the, talking the, about them again, so... No, and the not. funny thing is the Saturday Night Fever uh, album is like about the only YouTube clip I don't have done because for whatever reason, when I posted it initially, it had some issues with the recording, so it is in my to-do list. So there is another Bee Gees album that's coming up, God help us. Hmm. So uh, I guess it's not a true Bee Gees album, but there's plenty of Bee Gees, so... I'm sure we'll have lots of stories going forward, but thank you to all the comment. Uh, either <laughs> I gotta go on check YouTube these out or, now or Twitter. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so with that being said, I'm gonna turn the the keys of the car over to Josh, who's gonna start us off with our second uh, review of a Super Tramp album. This time, Breakfast in America. Yes, uh, Super Tramp, Breakfast in America, and in the opening montage, you heard Logical Song and. For right now, you're going to hear the title track, Breakfast in America. 
Okay, Matt, what are the stats on Super Tramp's Breakfast in America? So this Breakfast in America comes in at number 92 in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums, number 79 in 1979, I'm sorry, number 7 in 1979, number 366 of all time. It is Super Tramp's second highest rated album on Best Ever Albums behind 1974's Crime of the Century, which we covered already in a proper episode many, many weeks ago. Um, and this did not make Rolling Stone's list, and I don't think Crime of the Century did either, so no love for Super Tramp from Rolling Stone. Hmm. Yes, we last covered Crime of the Century back on episode 23 of this season, which was in the 1974 era. And uh, now you guys are going to take a look at my bio because it's the only one I've got. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was a good uh, one. Thank you. Uh, I just thought of it. Between uh, Crime of the Century and this album, Super Tramp only put out two albums, one called Crisis, What Crisis, in 1975, and... Uh, the other album called and only in the quietest moments dot 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 when uh in 1977 which had the hit give a little bit which i'm sure everyone knows yep now can i ask a question josh super tramp was the band that originally started as like the brainchild of like a multi-millionaire right putting together Yes. Or, or financing yes, the Dutch, them? Something, the Dutch yeah. uh, <laughs> philanthropist. Or yes. Uh, what was the, uh, you know, the uh, patron, I guess it would be. Yes, um, easily my favorite band story for any <laughs> yes, famous band. So crazy. Uh, also in 1977, the band moved from London to L.A. As you remember, as you recall, they are an English band. And uh, similar to Fleetwood Mac, they went uh, to L.A. to try and make their claim there and be where the action is. This is their sixth studio album. It reached number three in the UK and the and number one in the US and Canada. And it had four hit singles, more than their first five albums combined. It was number one on the Billboard Pop Charts for six weeks. And at the Grammys in 1980, it was nominated for Album of the Year and Best Pop Performance by a duo or group with vocals, which is quite the category uh but they did not win those they only won for best album package and best engineered non-classical album you wonder why no one watches (laughs) the grammys because these fucking categories give me a break um so uh this is uh the same lineup of musicians as in crime of the century we as a reminder we have rick davies on vocals and keyboard uh and harmonica richard hodgson on vocals keyboards and guitars John Hellowell on saxophones and woodwinds. Bob Siebenberg, also known as Bob C. Benberg. What an alias on drums. And (laughs) Dougie Thompson on bass. Guy Um, incognito over there. (laughs) Yeah, real. (laughs) Um, Now, if you recall, Rick Davies and Roger Hodgson are kind of the driving force of this band. And they are two musicians who have very different personalities and very different lifestyles and didn't really ever... I wouldn't say get along. They just kind of went their separate ways um, throughout the entire history of this band. And um, also they write their songs separately um, and don't collaborate on them. And that is the true, uh, true on this album as well. They continue that method of uh, creation. And it's kind of like CTS. We just <laughs> do our own thing and then come together. Oh, yep. I'm going to make the art. So, 
And uh, the original concept for this album was to be songs about their relationship and the conflict and ideology, Mm. different ideologies between the two of them. But that was scrapped for an album of, quote, fun songs. I guess that's a more commercial (laughs) (laughs) way to sell an album. Uh, And that is also uh, why the title is so fun. Uh, The original title was to be Hello Stranger, but was changed to Breakfast in America because it's... more Can we talk about what that talk would be like, by the way? It's like, I've got an idea for an album. Sounds good. It's going to be basically rumors, right? But except instead of romantic relationships, it's going to be about us as a band. Yeah, it's going to be right, less let's, interesting. Let's, yeah. So, all right, let's go in a different direction. Let's write happy, upbeat songs. Right. I think let's go that. Like, that's such a veering. Like, how does it get there, you know, from we've got this strong concept to this other thing completely? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I no, don't no, think they... Nothing in the bio? <laughs> No, I don't think they really had written many of the songs yet at that point. So okay. I, I, I think that was just an initial idea. Um, there were two rounds of demos during recording, um, home demos and in the studio. And those were used to work out backing arrangements in the album song order. Again, not much uh, participation in the, in the collaboration of the band at this point. And um, the sound engineers spent more than two months mixing the album and actually ran out of time, um, not because they were happy, but because they had a deadline and had to get the album in for for release. Um, there were conflicting reports about how Hodgson and Davies got along during this time. Some say they were cordial and it went well together. Others said that they were barely together, and, and when they were together, they barely talked to each other, just said cursory hellos. And again, over and over again, it seems like they didn't hate each other. They were just very different personality wise and they didn't, they just wanted to do their own thing. So I guess it was more of were a they, co-worker Were they situation. like shotgun <laughs> together, like in the original band or did they play together? And how did they end up in a band? Was it like they were, because their origin story, right? Were they just selected yeah. for this or were they actually playing together and then just realized in the course of playing that they had little to nothing else in common? That's a good question. I'm going to have to go back and check my notes on that. Okay. Um, I don't remember, but maybe when you guys are talking about the album, I can. Well, and there's a lot of Super Tramp yeah. fans that, that shared on the crime of the century and were actually great commenters. So okay. if you happen to be listening to this um after the episode and, and commenting, feel free to uh, give us some context there too. Cause I think we'd all greatly appreciate it. Yeah. They are, they are one of the more interesting artistic duos, you know, that collaborated on a band that was, that was successful for sure. The um, critics were mixed on this album. Uh, Steve Holden of Rolling Stone liked it while Robert Criscow of the village voice did not. However, this is considered their best album um, by critics and is definitely their best-selling album having gone quadruple platinum and selling you know up to like 2010 like you know 20 million copies or something like that Hmm. um we aren't talking about them again so i'm going to give a little little uh rap well let's wait let's wait let's talk about the album first and then i'll give it it's there's not much more after this so uh super tramp i can't remember what we thought of I remember what I thought, but I can't remember what you guys thought of when we talked about them last. So let's go with John. What did you think about Breakfast in America? Sure. From what I remember last time, we were all a little underwhelmed by Crime of the Century. Correct. I think I was would be the... yes. right. It's, and I think there was nothing, and, and I can only speak for myself. There was nothing offensive about it. It just didn't 
catch me. I yeah. think the biggest difference between that album and this album is this is um, this is a big glimmery piece of late seventies like prog pop. I would say, and especially the first half of this album, uh, the first five songs, I think is a very strong album. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a lot of these songs are very familiar to me, like Breakfast in America and the Logical Song and Take yes. the Long Way Home. These are staples of classic radio that I've listened to many, many times. Uh, I will say that I always, um, I, I can always tell the difference in the songs written by each guy. <laughs> like oh, they're they're very different lyrically, and they're very different. One is a lot more poppy, whereas the other is sort of, um, I think more musically ambitious. Mm -hmm. I would say. Um, unfortunately, I did not. And and once again, this is where Josh, feel free to to go in and, and give me some context straight here. But yep. the only thing I don't know is who is writing the songs that I recognize as sort of more tied to like uh, the proggy end of things and who's writing the more like glimmery pop songs. Cause like take the, the long way home mm -hmm. is a very different song than say the logical song is right. They, they sound like two different songwriters altogether. Um, the well, lyrics, those are both mm -hmm. credited to Hodgson, but are they? they, they often both kind of just split the credits on songs, I believe. So, okay. Well, maybe uh, well, I'm right. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong because I remember saying this about the last album. I listened to them too when you mentioned there were two different songwriters, and yeah. and that album, I think I was pretty much able to pick out both. But there, to me, there's certain songs that have more complexity and like a, a, a like a, a grittiness vocally, whereas mm -hmm. other songs are sort of more traditional, in my opinion, love songs or standard pop songs. Um, yeah, and. That kind of, you know, Oh Darling, right, is a very different song than mm -hmm. Breakfast in America, which is right before it. Yes. But uh, the lyrical content seems to be, I think it's like about L.A. is, is a lot. It or, is, uh, correct. Is it? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a lot of songs that, that talk about like Hollywood or L.A. type lifestyle. There's also a lot of songs like about coming of age, it seems like. That's definitely a theme that I I heard about quite a bit. So I actually like this album quite a bit, Logic. Uh uh, quite a bit, and I was going to say the logical, so that's why that popped in right there, but quite a bit um, aesthetically is what I was going to say. It's very slickly produced. It sounds of the late 70s, um, although not in a way that makes it um, difficult to listen to out of time. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't get into sort of that sound, I think, that, that we've not loved of that AOR sound. It has elements of that, but it's a it's a higher caliber of pop song and sort of overall piece than some of what those AOR songs, uh, AOR, like album-oriented rock type songs are, monster rock songs. You could definitely tell this album was designed to be played live in front of lots of people, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there hasn't been a whole lot of prog pop, which is kind of a lean that I often attribute like Queen to and certain other bands. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I would say I, I would say I like this album with the caveat that I think the first half of this album is considerably stronger than the second half. Mm -hmm. There also is a a lot of um, like harmonica on this album as yeah. well, which stood out to me. It seems like every single song sort of starts to some degree the same way and then deviates into the difference in each song. That that's probably the only other thing that 
kind of struck me was that each of the mm-hmm. ten songs almost kind of start with the same template and then deviate for and oftentimes it is a harmonica type sound at the beginning. So yeah. but I, I would give this one a I would give this one a, a go ahead and listen to it. Hmm. Matt, before you chime in, so Super Tramp was formed by Rick Davies and as we said, uh, funded by the Dutch millionaire. Um, and and then Davies recruited Hodgson. So they weren't really, you know, he was just looking for people to play in the band. Okay. Ultimately. Hmm. What did you think? Yeah, Mark? it's interesting. Like, I actually, Prague, I, I remember the first album being definitely more Prague-y. Uh, Crime of the Century is more of a Prague album than this. Um, I, this, this to me is a more more of a straight ahead pop album. Um, I, there, there, to me, there were very little elements of, of prog in here. Um, you know, a lot of the songs are, are regular lengths and, you know, two to five minutes long. Um, the last song's the longest and that's not even really a prog song that they just kind of do in a, more of an extended jam on child division. Mm. So, uh, this seemed to me like almost like a calculated kind of, you know, diversion away from that. Although there are some elements of it, you know, possibly, and, you know, um, where is it in uh, the logical song? It's like something about like some of the beats or the syncopations go a little bit of a different way, but it's still for me. It's an it's a straight up pop song, pop record, uh, almost to the point where I'm. I, I was thinking a lot of Paul McCartney when I was listening to this. The the bouncy nature of some of the songs, the melodic uh, strength of a lot of them, and uh, the, like the crisp production. Um, it's certainly McCartney was an artist that, that definitely came to mind. And speaking of the Bee Gees, there's definitely Bee Gees sounding vocals on this, you know, right off the mm-hmm. bat on Gone Hollywood. It's, you know, the, this high pitched, uh, you know, uh, Barry Gibb type vocal that is certainly there and, and spattered throughout some of these other songs as well. And I like that too. Cause I like, I like, I, I kind of like that Bee Gees sound. Um, Matt, you didn't hear Prague and Breakfast in America because I think there's quite a bit of Breakfast. Yeah, uh, some, some. I mean, again, it's it's like very, it's it, I, 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 maybe a little bit, but again, my my main uh, takeaway from this was was more of just a, a straight up a pop uh, record. Um, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just it just when I when I think of Prague, I think of like, like it just there's a much more elaborate type of uh, you know sound that you're getting with that. Um, hmm. And uh, but I see I, there's elements here. If they certainly if they extended extended some of these songs and maybe put two of them together to create one, then I okay now you're talking. But um, I, I think there's some layering here. There's a lot of like mm-hmm. instrumentation and stuff going on. I think that's kind of prog in nature. Potentially, I don't think it necessarily just because you have a lot of instrumentation doesn't that doesn't automatically make it prog. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, I, I don't want to get too bogged down into that. I think yeah. it, it was also interesting listening to this because I also heard a lot of keys. Like this is a very keyboard heavy album, yes. um, whether it's a piano or it's an electric piano or it's some sort of synth. Um, there's a very distinctive kind of keyboard sound here. Yes, and it's interesting to juxtapose this album, the late '70s, where in the last several weeks particularly in the cold listens we've we've really started to kind of listen to acts that were just kind of deconstructing pop music and doing something totally different punk really you know kind of coming to the forefront you know more aggressive rock and this is certainly this stands out as kind of not being like that at all you know right. and so this was a very easy listen there was no challenge to it at all overall I, I like i liked it quite a bit but i also never got to the point where it's like man this is beautiful i love this it's like it's this is very to me this is a very serviceable album it's very good um i think that there's other artists or you know you know pop centered artists that i would probably gravitate a little bit more towards um 
there wasn't too much that I disliked, outright disliked. I thought some of the parts of Goodbye Stranger, like I didn't really, and I think that that was one of the singles. I That was might have been one of my least favorite. That might have been my least favorite song on the record. That was a little bit, the lyrics stood out a little bit there. It's kind of like, I don't know. I, I, I just, it, it didn't really, it seemed kind of, I don't know. It, I just wasn't terribly impressed, um, and I'm not even the lyrics person. But um, so I'd give this a thumbs up. I think I did like it better than Crime of the Century. I thought it was more consistent. Um, I liked the way it ended. I liked that jam at, at Child of Vision. I thought that that was really good. Um, and it's it's pretty solid pop music, I think overall. And uh, I yeah, I, I guess I would go thumbs up. But I but it's also kind of one of those things where it's. Um, this is another one of those albums that I feel like I don't know, maybe at a different time or or. or um, a different uh, place or something like that. Like me, I might like it more or I, I should like it more because mm. that there's a lot of elements in here that I traditionally do gravitate towards, but I never, I, I thought that this was good. I didn't think it was great. So, um, uh, but I'm still, I guess that's still a thumbs up. So there you go. Do you like the, you've liked the other prog bands that we've talked about more than, than this one? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very much. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm kind of, I'm less high on this album than you guys. I think I'm kind of similar to how I felt in the, when we talked about crime of the century, I I think my main problem with this is I can't, I don't like this band where the primary like main driving instrument is the electric piano or keyboard. (laughs) It's it's really, it's such a distinct sound. And I think this is kind of like the hallmark of the band as a result. And it, it really, in my mind dates them to the seventies and not in a good way it's not one of those bands that carries that sounds uh you know can carry over and sound relevant into to the other time and and i as a result and and not to say that you need to do that for a band but i think it kind of for for whatever reason super tramps kind of like negative 70s for me like it's it's a thing that like these are the things they did in the 70s that artists didn't want to take and carry over into the future um so it it didn't work for me that well there were things i liked about it i think the the singles probably are the strongest part of the album i did like take the long way home and breakfast in america the most um i like the the other thing that kind of dates this album for me is the saxophone that kind of came up and was punctuated a lot throughout there's also a clarinet in this a lot like in um, breakfast in america the kind of is unusual and and these elements these instruments make it prog to me and it doesn't always work for me uh something like oh darling which is uh electric piano and and a ballad it's just very sound dated to me um and not in like a fun way the uh, overall i didn't really like the ballads that much on this album i agree with john that i think the front half of the album is much stronger than the back half i mean it, this band is definitely prog because the child of vision which is the last track is kind of like a long instrumental and i think they're trying to throw everything they can can at it um i can't help but thinking and listening to breakfast america have you ever guys heard that gym class heroes song that samples this song um it's so. not a good song but the way they sample it, it just gets in your head. And it's like the first thing I think of. Um, so I, I kind of like the way the, um, some of the vocal deliveries on the song. I like the, it's, they have an interesting singing voice too. Like Matt said, it's kind of high pitched, um, and in a higher, I don't know, t- timber than a lot of things. 
and there's not I think I always and you guys know this I think I respond to albums more that are kind of guitar driven or at least have guitar in it Mm -hmm. they don't really have a lot of guitar in this yeah it's not a lot of edge yeah I would say here yeah Yeah. casual conversations which is I think the second to last track sounds like a Randy Newman song to me in some ways it does I actually wrote that exact note Josh (laughs) yep so that's uh, yeah maybe Matt's right maybe it's just the no edge thing coupled with the electric piano that really kind of got under my skin I can totally get why the songs the singles were popular and they are fun to sing along to. They're kind of, especially Breakfast in America is kind of like an earworm. But there's just something something about this band that does, doesn't work for me. And I wasn't there, so I can't say. I was on the, uh, you know, the prog pop train, pop prog. I've been hit or miss with prog in general throughout the course of the our podcast. So this is just one of those bands that can stay in the 70s. See, that's interesting. I, can, mm. a, can a band be pop and prog? Isn't pro, you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm telling well, you. they're I'm trying prog, to. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's just because prog is like, I mean, it's known for what? Longer songs. Mm-hmm. It's known for complex arrangements and, um, and you know, uh, time signatures, right? And yeah. changing of those. Um, I think of that layering that Josh mentioned. That is, I think, where I hear the prog elements. Yeah. You know, um, that that's I, probably what I hear is the prog elements. I think using, I think, too, an element of prog for me is when they try and do classical stuff or use classical instruments in in their music mm-hmm. in a way. And I think this band does that with with not only like the yeah. the um, clarinet, but like the saxophone and and their harmonic but again i yeah i see what you're saying but i don't know just because you just because you throw in a clarinet or a a violin or something like that i i might push back against that that doesn't i don't necessarily think that that makes it prog it It makes it i don't know it depends on if you perhaps yeah think anything can be pop something like pop punk or pop country or right pop you know it's kind of the same thing like do you think that when you're talking prog does it have Hmm. to be a single set of elements matt you know i think for you it sounds like more there has to be a length and a level of complexity that makes I, it prog. I, I think so. I mean for I, me there is no. a there is a sound that's prog ish right. that I mm, okay. think of as prog. Like not in the way I think of like yes or early Genesis, but you know, even like even Rush goes into pop prog in the eighties. Yes. I would and, agree. You know, but and yeah, that's kind of I think what I think of. It's yeah. a harbinger of stuff like this. Yeah, I I think yeah I think Super Tramp is is on that line, Matt. I I agree yep. with you. I think the length and as we've said with Genesis and the other and Jethro Tull and things, they there is some complexity and kind of multiple movements in a song, and and that's not here. But I think they are trying to dabble in in that sort of area. No. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and maybe I mean maybe there's a broader definition of it. I just if Breakfast is America comes in at two thirty seven, I find it you know that's that's a real freaking short pro- progressive rock yeah, song. Yeah. You know, like you can barely get enough time to figure out what's going on, and then it's over. So, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, I, I mean I don't want to focus too much on that. Yeah. Well, Josh mentioned earworms, and it's funny he picked Breakfast in America, which is to some degree, but the logical song is definitely yeah, an earworm for me. Yeah. Every time I hear that song, it stays with me for a day or two afterward. I, there's just something about how that song plays out that is yes. somewhat designed to be stuck in my head. I, I can't describe it, but 
um, it, the bits and pieces. I, I actually really, really like that song. It's, it's, uh, I think it's a very strong song, both lyrically and um, structurally as a pop song. So it's very, yeah. it's very bouncy. It's just got this yes, bouncy kind of like, and it's, and it's got a good melody with it. And it's got like that staccato nature that yes. just makes it, that lends itself to really standing out. I think it's the, um, exactly. It's the melody with that staccato element. I think that, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that it, it, it accelerates each, it, it goes, it's like walking steps it, each time. It, even when they bring back the chorus, they bring it back differently yep. than they did the first mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was interesting too because I thought like the logical song, Breakfast in America, Take the Long Way Home, they're all songs that I knew, but I didn't know I wouldn't have gone, Oh, that's super tramp. You know, mm. they're just songs that have kind of always just been oh, there. Really? And okay. it's and it's funny too that you say, What is it, uh, give a little bit? Like I I know that song. I really like that song. I didn't know that was Super Tramp. I just oh, wow, I heard you didn't. that. Okay. No, no, no. It's like Super Tramp's one of those bands I'm like I know is out there, but I never made connections to like the actual songs that they did. Um Goodbye so, Strangers uh, so, on Adult Contemporary Radio a lot, too. You'll hear that. Yeah, I, that one that. I was less familiar with. Um, I, I didn't recognize that. But the other three singles on this, I certainly did. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think to be, you know, to be fair and be positive, Super Tramp, they are distinct in some way. They Nobody else that we've talked about kind of does what they do in combining this prog and pop in these short, you know, songs. And I think everybody, like to get to your point, I think everybody's probably heard a Super Tramp song if they haven't, if they don't know it's Super Tramp, because I think I was there, the same way at one point for knowing a bunch of the songs. It's there's an interesting thing about Super Tramp too is that they occupy a space in between the stuff that was selling tons and tons of copies, but was kind of considered to be standard issue stuff like the AOR I was talking about, mm-hmm. and then the stuff that's just Edge Lord Central, right? That we love. I think we all have a bias toward that, but it's there. And Super Tramp doesn't fit neatly into either. I mean, they're not trying to bring a ton of edge or reinvent the wheel necessarily, but they also aren't standard issue generic for Matt and I, at least. Maybe Matt, right. uh, Josh, they fall on it for you a little bit more, but um, that's that's to me what their lane is, that they are uh, uh, like a mainstream version of a variety of different sounds, which mm-hmm. for me is fine. They're kind of... Um, I think there's bands like that in every decade that sort of serve as very, uh, kind of like how Matt described, very satisfactory yeah. rock groups that there's mm-hmm. not a lot to find offensive about, but maybe don't have a transcendent level either. And you know what? That's okay. Not many, pe- not yeah. many people can write an album where they're banging out, you know, four singles all of and, and sell 20 million copies, which... You know, I think it's even more incredible to think of an album selling 20 million copies, <laughs> considering that as a format, yeah. the, the album doesn't even exist anymore and what it required to get an album. You know, so mm-hmm. I do want to mention how remarkable that is, too. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. I th- there there's just something about them that doesn't work for me. I can respect their uniqueness and and their place in in a kind of the musical landscape. But I, I don't. They're not a band that I'm going to be like, yes, Super Tramp. Okay. Let's put it on. Let's spin it up. Uh, so. <laughs> Play the Tramp, man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Do they call their, do, are there Tramp heads or they call them the Tramp? Is Good that, question. Is that I don't know what yeah. Tramp Super Stamps. Tramp Stamps. <laughs> Super Tramps. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, so just some kind of wrap up 
briefly put uh, i'll just start with this all the members of this band are still alive so Yay! yeah so they're you know they're congratulations, all congratulations 70s but they are still alive um Post Breakfast in America, they put out a double live album in 1980 called Paris, and then live versions of Dreamer, which we heard on uh, Crime of the Century, and uh, Breakfast in America, both recharted basically on Billboard, um, the live versions of those. Uh, Roger Hodgson moved to Northern California from LA and built a home slash studio to be his um, family to be with his family and to record solo and along with this physical distance from the band came his increasing tension and dissatisfaction with the band and after a worldwide worldwide tour in 1983 he announced that he was leaving the band in September of 83 the uh, band continued on without him and released two albums that moved away from the pop sound and were less commercial as a result and in 1988, the band decided to take a break with no plans to reunite after um, touring and recording for almost 20 years nonstop. The uh, 93, the uh, Hodgson and Davies briefly worked together to record some demos, but nothing really ever came about um, about it. They uh, separated ways, and some of the songs appeared on a later Super Tramp album. In 1996, Rick Davies reformed Supertramp with a new lineup, and the band would continue to intermittently tour and record new albums all the way until until 2015. The uh, Hodgson continued to tour solo, um, and unlike many bands that we've talked about, he never reunited with the band. Um, mm-hmm. So they never formed the Super Supertramp lineup. And uh, they were also... Um, among the artists whose original master tapes were destroyed in that 2008 Universal oh, fire. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I guess that's the downer note that I have, but they are wow. still alive. So, um, and they're still, uh, I think they're still making music too. And in one level or another, Rick Davies has said that he's kind of getting up in age and he enjoys playing music still, but he doesn't think he can do it in front of a live audience anymore so power to those guys they they kept on keeping on keeping on and mm. uh and uh there's definitely dedicated super tramp fans I, i'm sure when john posts the uh, youtube clips we'll get some more feedback they have some of the kindest fans oh, in well, terms that, of that feedback no i really really that's do. not surprising and especially for the fact that we didn't love the album yeah um no one you know, they they simply tried to share their experiences, which yeah. actually endeared them to me. I, I I like I told them I said we're gonna do another one, and I can I could tell you that while I appreciate it, we're gonna be honest. But with that being said, I can't say that my esteem did not grow a little bit because mm. you do learn something. So, yeah, shout out Super Tramp fans. They are <clears throat> a decent crew, at least in the comments on our um, segment. Not like the Bee Gees fans. <laughs> Fuck those guys. <laughs> Let's be honest. They're all guys, too. And yeah. <laughs> all right. So done with Super Tramp. So long to the 70s uh, Super Tramp. And yeah. Matt's <laughs> continuing on with the Pink Floyd tour. The, Pink Floyd, the Floyd Super yeah. Tramp. <laughs> what there are Pink goes. Floyd fans called? The, Do they the, have a the, name? The Stoners. Teenagers <laughs> for a while. Uh, All right, so Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, In the opening montage, you heard a clip from Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, and now you're going to hear a clip from Comfortably Numb. Uh, 
Okay, so we're hitting Pink Floyd again. This uh, the wall comes in at number uh, seven in the 1970s on best ever albums. All yep. Right. Number two in 1979, number 27 of all time, and it did crack Rolling Stone's list at number 129. Uh, it is the band's 11th studio album, and I, I didn't even I didn't even write this down. We've covered covered them what six five six times already, multiple well, let's times. Well, like let's see. Saucer albums. full. Of, let's see how good I do. How well I do here. Right. Saucer full of secrets. Mm-hmm. Piper at the gates of dawn. Metal. Um, obviously, a dark side. Yep. Uh, Wish You Were Here uh, and Animals. Yep. So this is number seven. Seven. Okay. okay. Yep. yep. So there you go. Thanks, John. No um, problem. And so, yeah, the 11th, this is the 11th studio album. It was recorded between December of 1978 and November of 1979. So almost a full year. And it was released on November 30th, 1979. And guys, this is a rock opera. <laughs> and uh, it explores uh, Pink who is a jaded rock star who is, whose eventual self-imposed isolation from society forms a figurative wall, hence the name The Wall. Did they, I think they never named him. I, I really paid attention to the lyrics on, on one of the listens, and I don't think they named him. Yeah, they that's a good do point. Do not Josh. name him by yeah. name, Josh. Yeah. But in, in throughout the research that I did, he was it was it the character was referred to as Pink multiple times, and in one okay. instance, actually, his was was Pink Floyd. Okay. So um, it's... That was the so name they were going for. autobiographical? Are you going to tell us? I'm going to. Oh, yeah, I'll yeah. tell you. Um, so, but this is the, uh, according to Wikipedia, this is the 27th best-selling album of all time with sales over 30 million. Uh, it's their second highest album, a highest-selling album uh, behind Dark Side of the Moon, which is fifth of all time with over 44 million copies sold. Because it had and, like two different periods of commercialism, right? Like the original and then once the Berlin Wall fell, right? And oh, probably. the late 80s. Late '80s, I remember it having a, a recurrence. Too. Well, they, they, and they performed it in Berlin. Um, yeah, in the '90s, I think. So right, maybe yeah. right when it went down. So yeah, you're probably right about that, John. I didn't, I didn't see anything about before, that. But before yeah. we get into the bio here, let me ask you this: Do the kids like Pink Floyd nowadays? I mean, are they yes, one of those? There's fans still that... plenty of kids who listen okay. to Pink Floyd. I was hoping they'd go away, but I guess not. God bless them. <laughs> Don't listen to Josh. Um, <laughs> So uh, let's see. Oh, oh, and this album falls, and it's just following up on the uh, the sales. This uh, falls just below Madonna's Immaculate Collection in terms of mm. all-time sales, and just mm-hmm. above the Titanic soundtrack. Wow. <laughs> yep. Celine. All right. So a little history of this of this band. You guys might remember when we covered Animals several weeks ago. Um, they they followed that up that album up with a tour in 1977. This uh, tour was called the In the Flesh Tour. And Can I this was... jump in real quick, yeah. Matt? I'm sorry to interrupt your bio. I actually read something this week that in the split of Pink Floyd, Roger Waters did not get much, but he got the rights to the pig from that album, which cracked me up for some reason. <laughs> but I just had to share that because I ran across it this week and it made me like actually laugh out loud. So there you go. He has pig rights. He has the yeah. rights to that pig that flew yep. over. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, the you mean on the album cover? On the album cover, yeah. <laughs> when they they also use the well, they also use the inflatable pig during the tour, the oh, in the flesh okay. tour, and they use it during the wall tour as well. So oh, if we wow. can throw that in there. So the pig is yeah, that's certainly part of the Roger Waters and Pink Floyd aesthetic for sure. Gotcha. 
Um, so during that tour, the In the Flesh tour, uh, it wasn't a good experience for the band, uh, for Waters in particular, because he was getting more and more agitated with the very large crowds that they were playing in front of. And these crowds would be disruptive. They would be loud and rude. Uh, they seemed to be there more for the spectacle and the experience and not the music. And uh, they, in some instances, they were even lighting firecrackers off during the shows and distracting the band. Um, and during the tour's final performance in Quebec, uh, a fan of the front row was irritating uh, Roger Waters so much that uh, he spits on the fan. And, uh, and, and actually, that, that incident, it's, it's very interesting because that was really the, uh, the impetus for this record. Um, because after that show, Waters goes backstage and he talks to Bob Ezrin, who uh, ends up being one of the producers on this album. Oh, okay. A as well as um, a friend of Ezrin's who was there who's also a psychologist. And he basically talks to them about, you know... Um, how he started to feel, you know, isolated from the fans. Um, he started to fantasize about him placing a wall between himself and the crowd and, and really was not happy with how he was treating the fans and not happy with how they were treating him. So he's like, why the hell? Are, like, what difference does it make? Let's just play behind a wall. So, um, so that was a concept he started to play around with. I feel like that's kind of been a through line for a while now and at least a for him of his albums yeah for him. oh yeah yeah it's yeah for him satisfaction with the fans yeah a lot of dissatisfaction for roger waters yeah. unfortunately. well and the ghost of sid barrett i yeah. feel like is on this album too a little bit am yep. i miss okay yep. like, yeah nope okay. that's true so um but he actually starts to uh put together two different concepts and presents them both to the band one was about um, a, a man's dreams that dealt with marriage, sex, and the pros and cons of monogamy. And uh, mm. that was denied. That was not what the law was about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that actually would go on to be Roger Waters' first solo record, um, 1984's The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Okay. So if you were interested in that, wow, that, that okay. album exists. So you can go to that. Um, I think this, no matter what his other thing was, it was the better choice than that album. I'm well, the other thing was what you get here with the wall. Right, the so wall, this yeah, is about exactly. the protagonist's yeah. self-isolation after years of traumatic interactions with authority figures and the loss of his father as a child. Um, and uh, the band decided that the latter was the, was the more interesting of the two ideas. Um, so... So the other thing that was kind of going around around this time is this is just man this just keeps popping up the bands bands in the seventies artists in the seventies having terrible financial investments oh yeah for sure um, and sixties for that matter but yeah seventies yeah, was really yeah something so else. Pink Floyd had a bunch of their like millions of pounds you know invested with some group and of course they were mismanaged and they were lied to and then they woke up one day and all the money was gone. Um, yet somehow the band was still, you know, heavily in debt. They had to pay taxes. And um, so they How they the hell do, do you make how bad does it have to be exactly. to make Dark Side of the Moon and be broke? Exactly. So they pull the Rolling Stones and they all move out of England and they <laughs> go to different countries so that they don't have to pay taxes and they can kind of start to regroup. And um and they start working on the record. Uh, Roger Waters does bring in Bob Ezrin and uh he Bob Ezrin used to work or had uh, had previously worked with Alice Cooper, Lou Reed, Kiss, and Peter Gabriel, some uh, CTS artists yeah, there. Yeah, he's a destroyer. Yeah. Kiss. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, and Ezrin helps uh, not only with the production, but he helps Waters flesh out the ideas for the concept of the album. And he, uh, he presented a 40-page script to the band, and they actually had a table read <laughs> for the script, <laughs> kind of like a movie. So uh, and all and at the end of the table read, everybody was very excited. They thought that the uh, that the story and the idea was was all very was very good. Um, and the writing credits go mostly to Roger Waters. Uh, David Gilmore gets uh, some co-writing credit for Comfortably Numb, Run Like Hell, and Young Lust. And and Bob Ezrin got co-writing credit for The Trial. So, but this is mostly, you know, some people view this as, as mostly just being a Roger Waters solo album with some some minor contributions. Um, mm-hmm. So the rock opera, yes. Let's talk a little bit about this. Um, it is it the protagonist of Pink is is a character based. Oh, can I guess, Matt? This yeah. I, this is okay. So let me see what I gather from these lyrics. All right. Joshua. Okay. Okay. So I get that it's a I, I definitely the so you gave a few things away. So I'm not going to claim I'm so uh-huh. definitely saw that yeah this guy lost his father early because that's in mm-hmm. the early songs for sure. And Very then, much like Tommy. Clear, before him clearly did did not do well at school was beaten at school and (laughs) maltreated by that came up in multiple Mm -hmm. things at which point the the i finally realized matt that the wall is what he's building brick by brick while these traumas are happening right is that what's Mm -hmm. going on okay i find don't ask me how i didn't know that but that's yes that's i was like as you listen oh okay yes okay i was like ah i get it now so and then like he becomes a rock star i think yes yep okay and like he goes nuts becomes too famous Basically. Yeah, like well, yeah. Does the whole like yeah. I'm a rock star. It's hard mm-hmm. for me. And then, but like I think he becomes like actually nuts for or or he or he's high for like a part. It's of the more album. of the high. So he okay, that's where gotcha. comfortably yeah, numb comes in. He's hallucinating and he's kind of in a trance like a drug like state. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm following it till that point. I will admit at the end I don't quite get the end that was the last part okay. where i kind of lost so the story did, a little he bit he didn't commit suicide the character no he did not I, commit suicide okay, i thought no, he might no. have uh, okay no josh grin reaper over here wants him to commit suicide <laughs> it just wants people to I die thought, but no i thought that second half of a ghost would be more, more i didn't feel like there was a redemption story or a death which usually is what happens nope. at least that i felt like well but, well, let's see what how you. Th- so, okay. so yeah, yeah. So it's he's got this trauma. There's also um, it's it's not just the teachers that were abusive. That the mother was kind of like negligent yes, yes. and not not very present. Yeah, so Vera, there's some right. Is that yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah. and mother, and and then there's the war, right? Oh, so yeah. so the part of the right. album's like his, he's flashbacks to his, his life as a child, um, and he does become a rock star. He hallucinates, um, and he uh, by the time he and then he eventually kind of comes out of it, and he ends up feeling a tremendous amount of guilt because towards the end there he's actually becoming he he views himself kind of as like a. Um, Almost like a Stalin-esque, you know, Hitler-esque. Well, kind yeah, of he's kind of like a fascist and a racist yes. there for a while, yes. isn't he? Okay, exactly. yeah, okay. I, yeah. I thought I heard that. Yeah. Yep. So there's definitely some racial stuff going on there, and then he kind of realizes that after after many many years of placing blame uh, at, at the feet of others, he starts to maybe th- think and understand. Well, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's me. So he starts getting guilty, oh. and then he puts himself on trial. The so trial. that's what the trial is oh, about. Oh, that's the, what the, the trial. I couldn't figure song. that out. Okay. Yep. And so throughout the, he puts himself on trial, and the end result is that he he's got to tear down the wall and be himself again. Mm-hmm. So the, right. the wall, he's protecting himself, and he's being isolated behind it, and then he ends up tearing it down. Um, so pretty good, pretty good, you guys, almost okay. almost the whole way. So the one thing that I and I kind of knew, well, I knew most. I didn't know all of it. I know a good amount of that, but 
what I didn't know and I thought was very cool, and I'm sure that this was really hard to, pit, to, 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 to uh, pinpoint, Ooh, but the okay. album actually comes full circle because when it opens, the very opening track of In the Flesh, it starts with the music from the last track of the album, which was um, Beyond yes. the Wall. Yes, I right? noticed that, Matt. Yeah, and th- the that very... was not the only callback, yeah. Yeah, no, there's but, a lot well, of callbacks. Right. In the... But at the very beginning of the opening track, okay, he says, okay. Uh, it, um, we came in. Right, but at the la- oh. the very end of the track, the very last track, I probably should have started with this. So it's so at, at the uh, you know beyond the wall, right at the end, he says, "Isn't this where?" And then it cuts off, and then the beginning of the album says, "We came in." So the idea uh. is oh. that it repeats itself. So this cycle is going to repeat itself, and he and he finds himself mm. over and over again going through this whole thing, and ro- and this is supposed to help represent Roger Waters continuing battle with this of the of the of the circular nature of all of these things i thought that was really cool i was like and you could barely hear it because it's so far back it's very it's it's not i will say this is by far the most coherent storyline in any rock opera we've (laughs) ever done so i have to give pink floyd credit it's the only one we've ever done where i'm like this is a a somewhat linear coherent actual story that enhances the album so yeah Kudos to Pink Floyd for making the only rock yeah. opera that ever had a story that wasn't completely devoid yeah, yeah. nonsense. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, on to the. Um, you guys get A's on that. That was pretty good. So, on to the. So, so the recording of this album was was fraught with much tension. Um, so they uh, they had an actual another producer named James Guthrie who came in to help produce. And um, so he comes in and he was surprised to see Ezra there. And he felt he's like, we're here to do the same job. So I guess he didn't know who else was involved. So he was kind of feeling weird about that. Ezrin wasn't punctual. He arrived late to many sessions, which frustrated Waters. Um, at the time, Ezrin was going through some marital issues and he wasn't doing well emotionally. Uh, keyboardist Rick Wright wasn't comfortable with Ezrin's presence there. And, um, and he felt that the band was ceding production responsibility, too much re- production responsibilities to him. Uh, most of the pre- uh, previous Pink Floyd albums were produced by the entire band. Um, and Wright himself was going through some marital issues and he wasn't really contributing much to the album at all. And this frustrated uh, Roger Waters and David Gilmore. So Wright trying to figure out his place in the album asks if he can pr- produce, uh, which you know Waters reluctantly agrees to, but he's not happy with the results. So, um, so people are kind of pissed off at Rick Wright for just being, uh, you know, uh, not being helpful at all. And uh, so the band agrees to go on holiday in August of 79, but it was cut short because essentially Columbia Records said, told the band, well, if you guys can get this record out by, you know, in time for Christmas, then we will increase your royalty rate. And because they were so in, in need of money, Roger Waters is like circling the wagons, got guys, let's get back into the studio. But Rick Wright was the only member that said no. Um, he had, the other thing that was going on with him is his kids were older. And while the other band members' kids were visiting in the studio and they were spending time with them, his kids were still were in school in London or in, in England, and uh, and he was missing them very much. So him, the time that he had with his family on on holiday was very precious to him. So, but this infuriated Roger Waters, and basically, <laughs> um, it basically got to the point where he insists that Rick Wright leave the band. 
Um, yeah. Wow. So, so, and uh, he says, if he doesn't leave the band, then I'm just going to release this album under my name. It's not going to be a Pink Floyd record. And uh, Wright eventually does step down. So he's fired slash uh, quits the band during the, um, the, the, the recording of the record. Gotta make that money. But oddly enough, for some reason, he stays on as a session musician and does play with the band during the tour. <laughs> what? Yes. What? Uh, exactly. I don't, I don't, that was just said like that. It wasn't, they didn't really go into any details as to how that worked, but he still played with the band. Um, and there's another little f- funny anecdote about that, that I'll get to that when we talk about the tour. But um, the album was met with mixed reviews, but it sold very well. Um, for the tour itself, they actually had fake band members start off playing in the flesh. Um, so people thought that that was actually the band because they were wearing latex uh, 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 masks of the huh. band. And then um, at the end of it, when the plane, there's a plane that comes in and it crashes, right? And yeah. uh, and then the band's release, the, the real band behind them is revealed, and they're and they're playing on a higher platform. So um, it's like the imposter band, but that band actually played throughout the uh, the performance as well. Huh. Um, so during the during the, the the tour, this was really cool. What they would do is during the first half, they would have part the, the part of the wall was actually already built. It's like a forty foot high wall that was made with uh, uh, like cardboard bricks. And throughout the first half, they would gradually build the wall up until the very end of "Goodbye Cruel World," which is the last track on the on the first half. Mm-hmm. They would put the final brick in, and then the whole wall was so you'd have this monstrosity of a wall. That for the most of the second part, the band is playing behind the wall. Oh, so uh, the, the wall's in the front of the stage. Totally, yes. Oh, and so okay. there's a couple of moments like comfortably numb. Gilmore comes out and he plays on top of the wall, and Roger kind of <laughs> comes to the front. And, or, but but for the most part, the performance is done behind the wall, isolating the band from the audience. Um, right. So uh, <laughs> during the tour, so they were getting along. Each member of the band had his own trailer. So, but it was the trailers were kind of set up as like a square, and each the doors are facing outwards, away from each other. So, like they would open the door, and they wouldn't have to worry about <laughs> running into each other. Um, the tour did not last too long. It was it was they only played smaller. I'd venues, imagine that. <laughs> and they played about thirty shows, so they did not make any money on it. The act, oddly enough, though, the only person that did make money was Rick Wright because he wasn't a member of the band. He was a session <laughs> musician, so he got money. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, so then they go on. So the third part was the movie. So they did create a film, and uh, the 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 original idea was for Roger Waters to play the uh, main character of Pink. But it didn't take them long, and you guys probably not surprised by this. Roger Waters isn't a really good actor, <laughs> yeah. so um, they decide to go to uh, Bob Geldof for some reason, um, which wow. I didn't know. I, I knew Bob Geldof from the from like the Live Aid and, and like those mm-hmm. concert promotions, but he was in a band, yeah, a uh, punk Mondays. band. Uh, what's that? Happy, wasn't he in the Happy Mondays? Wasn't I have it band? down here as Boomtown Rats. Oh, Boomtown was, Rats. That's yep. right. Yes, yes, yes. So they asked, they want him to play the role of Pink. They think his, he's got the look, and I guess he had some acting ex- experience. Um, but it took several tries because uh, Geldof was not a fan of Pink Floyd. He was actually in a cab <laughs> ride with his uh, manager, and his manager was trying to convince him to take this role. And he was, and Geldof was quoted as saying, "Fuck those guys! I can't stand Pink Floyd." <laughs> um, but he finally was coerced or convinced to do the job, and so he he acts uh, as the main character in the in the movie. And one final thing, I know this this is a long bio, but uh, the album is also known for the artwork that was used in this during the sleeve or in, in the sleeve of the of the record, as well as the movie, because the movie is partially live action, but it's also partially animation. And this was done by a gentleman named Gerald Scarf. 
Um, and so, he, and so, a lot of his characters that he did, like the teacher, the mother, uh, the the judge from the trial, they were, they made them in huge inflatable balloons for the tour as well. Um, and this is the first album of the Pink, first Pink Floyd album since their debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, whose album cover was not designed by Hypnosis. Um, all the other ones oh, were done yeah, by that, that graphic design studio, company. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the album cover here is just minimalistic, uh, with just the white brick wall on the cover. So, um, so yeah, so there you go, Pink Floyd, The Wall, and I think it is. Uh, John went first, first. So Josh, it's your turn. What do you think here, buddy? Well, I I liked parts of it. I I wasn't totally sold on this album. I I think part of me is if you a lot of these bands that do the rock operas. I don't think it can be music only. I think there's so much of a visual component that they want to accomplish. And clearly they kind of did that with their tour, but you know, along with Tommy, they always end up making movies. So I think if they're going to do a rock <laughs> opera, just fucking make a movie right from the go. Don't like, don't just beat around the bush and like try and make an album or a concept album. I think there's so much like, I think there's so much, a. Uh, you can benefit from the visual aspects of these rock operas. And, and for me, I think the, the music component just doesn't carry enough of, of it for me when Mm. I I enjoy, you know, there is a lot of similarities to me from Tommy uh, listening to this album. I mean, it's kind of thematically the same, you know, there's a a guy that becomes a famous rock star. (laughs) They're not really like reinventing the wheel in terms of a concept album, but um, the, uh, but along with Tommy, like seeing the movie kind of like added some value to me is my point. Um, I think there's some really good guitar on this album. I think the production is top notch. Uh, you can hear, you know, we've, we've mentioned it before the way there's a lot of like kind of audio callbacks and repetition of things that you hear throughout the album that you definitely, but I definitely picked up on the, um, there's also some kind of like not just layering but not just like sound effects but also like vocal things that kind of come in and out and i think there's a strong that kind of adds to the kind of atmosphere of the album as a whole i definitely got a vibe to this album listening Mm -hmm. to it um i a lot of the song for it being a double album the songs kind of really flow into each other one at a time if you're not paying attention you'll be on another song without without Mm -hmm. really knowing it um i did not really get much of i didn't get much enjoyment out of the songs that weren't the singles that i didn't already know um i think comfortably numb and um another brick in the wall part two are probably my favorite ones i did like that young lust song as well um and uh, hey, you obviously is another is another mm-hmm. uh, big one. There is there is some musical aspects to this album that sound kind of very eighties and of their time to me as well. There is um, almost like a on one of the tracks, another brick in the wall. I think it's part two. It, it sounds almost like a disco beat. Yes, over. it does. Yeah, good call. And yep, I picked up on that, and then like "Run Like Hell," which is kind of one of the other big singles, I think, on the back half of the album or the second LP. That is a very kind of like '80s, like arena rock sound to me. So I, they're definitely. I feel like recently we're seeing some of these things that we know carry over into the '80s. These uh, sounds or kind of feel, and I think they're they're right there with it. Um, is it? 
I feel like the vocal delivery of the singing was different on this album than other Pink Floyd albums. Yep. Is that true? Because it's, it sounds different. It's a lot of what Roger Waters. Okay, and it's he's, a lot he of wasn't normally the singer. Uh, he he would take some, but Gilmore was probably up until this point was more prominent as okay. a, as a lead vocalist, and he's gotten Gilmore's got a crisper, cleaner vocal sound. And gotcha. what Ro- Ro- Roger Waters here is straining a lot. That's those yes. higher pitch things. That's that's more him. That doesn't. Okay doesn't sound as nice as okay so i'm not going crazy i'm not building a wall also um yeah so the uh i i think the i agree with john i think kind of the the rock opera storyline works on this album as a whole the other thing i noticed um on the trial that really reminded me of my chemical romance and their black parade album i feel like they must have gotten some influence because that's almost like a concept album as well about a guy dying going to hell and things like that and Mm -hmm. um uh yeah so i i think they're probably influenced by this on some level so is it my favorite pink floyd album no i still think wish you were here is probably my favorite one is it better than some of the earlier pink floyd albums yeah i think i liked it more am i i pink floyd is just going to be one of those bands that i'm never going to get completely or never be super into but i i feel like at this point i've built up enough listening that i can kind of see their journey and and respect what they're going through and i i thought this is pretty decent okay right. well let's let's start with some of the things that josh mentioned that stand out the the thing that always amazes me about Pink Floyd is the productions of their production of their albums. It's that's just even within the context of rock production of the seventies, that clean set, they just always manage to, even if they have complex stuff that it sounds very, very clean. And this album is no mm-hmm. different on that front. Um, when David Gilmore is allowed to play the guitar, which is not often on this album comparatively, <laughs> yeah. um, it sounds very good, and I think most people would know, you know, comfortably numb. I think is probably the, the yeah. best. Ex- and I don't mean to go to the singles, but let's be honest, that's where the most guitar work from yeah, the guitar uh, David solo Gilmore on that is excellent. Yeah, I mean that's where yeah. most of the guitar work is is on the singles um, that Josh mentioned in full. Um, most of the other songs that aren't singles are largely storyline driven, in my opinion. Um, yes. I'd say half of this album, the pieces of music are as much storyline pieces as they are musical pieces um because as i mentioned earlier i did think and credit to them that the the plot of this rock opera even if you didn't read something was largely present just by reading the lyrics so um i think that is big and i think that also explains why there's a generation of people that connected so deeply with this album because it wasn't just the music or the vibe it was also um, you could, you know, read the lyrics and listen to the lyrics and relate to them. So um, there's a lot there's a lot to like there. With that being said, um, this, this is the Pink Floyd that I think of as the Pink Floyd when I've said before I don't like Pink Floyd. This version of Pink Floyd is the version of Pink Floyd I think of. Um, I was actually starting to doubt myself as we went <laughs> through the journey of Pink Floyd because I was finding myself liking most of their albums and thinking to myself... Oh, did I at some point miss a memo? And I and this is where we get into the Pink Floyd that I think goes away from interest, more of the interesting musical ideas that even if sometimes I don't like them, I appreciate the complexity and the, the view they're taking on them. 
end away from some of the David Gilmore guitar work and vocals, which is more aesthetically appealing to me, yeah. and goes into sort of like bloated, kind of up their ass Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. and they, they, I, or as I have called it in multiple occasions, Planetarium Pink Floyd is like what this album is for me a little bit. Um, I I think that there are like two different types of people in the world there's those that listen to pink floyd at a certain time in their life and they speak to them directly and i think the wall in particular speaks to people um because i know in my own life people that will rate the wall as a top five album of all time it just holds a level of importance in their life it speak it seems to speak to certain folks, especially teenagers, as like a clarion bell where it's like, ah, this concept of the wall and isolation, it just, it all comes together, right, for folks. And as a result, I think it's very difficult to talk about this album because you've got that group of people, right? Then you've got the old school Pink Floyd fans who like hate this album, right? This represents like all the stuff they don't like about Pink Floyd, right? And this is like, this is where Pink Floyd that I love died, right? Like this album, there's those folks, Right. I I wouldn't say I'm in either of those camps, but this version of the Pink Floyd sound is just it's just it's there's not enough here for me. You know what I mean? It's just I, I, I also have a little bit of a bias. Like I if I wanna read a state like a literary statement, I wanna read a novel. Um, I really do. And like kind of what Josh said, if I wanna see like a visual full length thing, I wanna see a movie, right? I I don't often want my um my albums to be concepts at all times, especially when the concept kind of hits me over the head a little bit. Um, with that being said, I mean, the singles on this album are massive hits for a reason. I mean, every time I hear another brick in the wall, part two, you're reminded, even though you've heard it a thousand times, you're reminded of like what a good song it is because it really is. It's, you know, even though it's got things like the children's choir and stuff in it, that's kind of like, mm, that's a little on the nose. It's still, it still is a very good song musically. Um, comfortably numb. You know, as I said, there was a period of my life where we would go to the planetarium every year and I can't think of it without hearing like, hello, <laughs> is there any, you know, it's kind of like, it could become cliche in that sense. Like, hey, you is a good song in terms of thematically and sounds like isolation. But um, I-, I think this album also suffers a little bit for me from fatigue of just the whole concept of there was a period of time where I couldn't separate Pink Floyd from the concept of the wall. It kind of Mm. overwhelmed them a little bit to me in terms of my eyes. And it wasn't really, it was like Pink Floyd was like the band that made dark side of the moon and the band that made the wall. Right. And I think that kind of overwhelms them to the casual fan at times. Um, So I, I, I'm not a huge fan of this album. Um, I think it is quite a step down from Wish You Were Here and Med- and Animals, which we just listened to. And I, I don't, uh, Metal was another one I didn't love, but the, the 60s Pink Floyd interested me more. And certainly Wish You Were Here and Dark Side and Animals, to me, musically, sonically, um, were, were considerably more appealing albums than this one was. So I, um, slightly trend down on this one all right well first before i get my take i have to there's a quote here that uh it, it kind of goes back to what josh was saying so um david gilmore 
talks about writing, you know, or working on uh, working on some of his guitar sounds. And so Bob Ezrin says to me, quote, go to a couple of clubs and listen to what's happening with disco music. So I forced myself out and listened to loud four to the bar bass drums and stuff like and stuff and thought, God awful. And then I went back and tried to turn one of those parts into one into one of those um, turn one of those parts into one of those songs so that it would be catchy. So, yes, there was like a let's try to disco this up to make it a little catchy for the time. So uh, that was spot on, Josh. Um, Mm. So what I what I noticed about listening to this and it also made me think back to Tommy and uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway in particular, because those are a lot. These are the three concept albums double albums rock operas that we've covered um that i've that i knew quite well going into that i've listened to many times before and with each one of them i found myself liking it more after listening to it for the week for this week um and appreciating it more because there was always some level of me with those albums that was like eh they're okay right they're not what the other albums were and i think i this allowed me having that background knowledge and then really kind of focusing more and doing the research behind two of them. I didn't do the research for Tommy, but um, helped me to kind of learn more about them and, uh, and, and kind of uh, enjoy them more. So I definitely, this was an album that I, that I th- probably before this week, I would agreed I would have agreed with John that I always felt was a step down. I never got like, why is this so popular? You know, I definitely mm-hmm. like wish you were here's a better album than this. And there's part, I think, you know, I was like, I liked animals better than this. Um, you know, and even parts of metal was just because of echoes. Cause I love that song so much. And that's like half that record um, that I liked more than this. This seemed a little bit much. I agreed. I, I wasn't that into Ro- Roger Waters voice. Um, it's, it's, this is a dark sounding record in a lot of places. Yep. And, um, um, it's very it is that you feel that isolation you feel that uh, that desperation and you know from the main character and it's kind of I mean it's I don't want to say jarring but it de- it's edgy right it does it de- it's definitely supposed to emote like you're supposed to be uncomfortable with a lot of these songs um and then it kind of like loud you know then yes and then you have the singles that kind of brings you back so I you know um so they, it has that but I I really liked listening to this this time around and I found myself liking pretty much all the songs um appreciating them more um and uh you know kind of enjoying like where it takes you because um and it's also interesting because this is also not like Pink Floyd because these songs are short this is not like you know mm-hmm. the, like the wish you were here Pink Floyd uh you know 18 minute long songs or like the longer songs that you got with Dark Side or Animals was like 15 7 minute like 17 minute really indulgent songs there's there's some more straight up just pop songs in here um and even ones that weren't like the singles, like, um, you know, like the Another Brick in the Wall, obviously, you know, um, and uh, Comfortably Numb. Um, but songs like Mother, which I think is a really, that's that's a really pretty song. It's got a really nice guitar solo at the end, um, you know, kind of more an acoustic jam. Mm-hmm. Uh, songs like Young Lust, which is is kind of more of a, I don't want to say it's funky, but it's more of an, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of upbeat type song. Um, I don't think Hey You was a single, but that's a song that I've always liked. So, um Waiting and waiting for the worms towards the end was kind of like this menacing, you know, cool sounding song. And and I never liked the trial. I always thought that that was like this over the top, like, you know, this is where it gets like to be a musical and it's more of an acting piece. But towards the end of that, where they keep bringing back that guitar strumming from um, We Don't Need No Education, that and they're just really laying that on thick. I, I really liked it and I liked the way that it ended. So um, it's interesting 
to kind of really appre- to, to find myself liking this more. I'm higher on this album than I was going into this week. And um, I get what you guys are saying. And it's, it's that the concept record thing is, 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 is a bit much. It's not certainly not my favorite way to go about doing an album. Um, but I, I, I don't mind it because as long as the music is there, uh, you know, sing about whatever you want to sing about. So I, and I do like a lot of the songs on this. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's not my favorite. I still probably would say maybe "Wish You Were Here," "Dark Side of the Moon," probably the, or one two in, in 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 one way, shape or form. But um, but this is I I've appreciated this and just thinking and just listening to you talk about all those other albums, John. Like just think about all the stuff that Pink Floyd has done. I mean, this is one of the reasons mm-hmm. that I kind of like them is because you know you can get such a different sound and such a different vibe from this band depending on which album you're listening to and yeah they can get thrown in as being like oh the you know the uh the the planetarium pink floyd the druggy pink floyd and there's yeah there's there's absolutely truth to that but like there's still a lot of variety in what they've done and um and and i and i really like this record i think this is kind of like the you know it, 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 you know, um, it's I, I don't I wouldn't start here with Pink Floyd. Although what yeah. I would say is, if I was going to give anybody a Pink Floyd song to start with, it'd be comfortably none hands down. I mean that song. I think that's a really well. I think that's so really many representative. Do start with this album. That's I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I just. I disagree with that. I would not start. I, I think you got to start with Wish You Were Here. Um, but but comfortably numb has that perfect that David Gilmore solo that's like quintessential David Gilmore sound and it's just a it's a great solo and not only is it a great guitar solo but what's being played behind it with the bass and the drums is really is a great compliment and it made me think about the importance of what the bass and drums are doing in it during a guitar solo that really can bring it to the next level and I think that they absolutely did it there I the only downside of that song to me I would like that that guitar solo could go go on for another two minutes I think it's about a minute and a half and i think that that's you actually you get a better version of that and they have a live album from 1994 called pulse and they do that song and it's a much longer guitar solo and uh and gilmore gilmore shines on it so uh i i i I really like this album and i liked it a lot more than i thought that i would say going into it um and it's 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 just interesting because um you know i've known it so well but i was just listening to it in a different way and more thoughtfully and uh i I'm, i'm a big fan of it so i'm thumbs up yeah, I, I actually disagree with you, Matt, on the idea that you start necessarily with other albums because I think you're underestimating how much of the appeal, the concept of The Wall is yeah. for people that do love Pink Floyd. Hmm. And not all, like right? Because like, there's people that come into Pink Floyd in different ways, some for the music exclusively and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think that the gateway drug for a lot of people into Pink Floyd was this version of Pink Floyd. It's more accessible lengthwise song. I mean, could you imagine being like a 13-year-old kid and sitting through a 16, you know, minute solo like it's this one as you mentioned, it's a lot more bite-sized. You've got a you've got a plot, especially if you yourself feel marginalized or uh-huh. traumatized. And and I I think there's a not insignificant amount of Pink Floyd fans that they're through line into the band. Certainly the ones I knew growing up because of the omnipresence of the wall as an entity in the early 90s, right? Was in many ways, I think the wall was was more well known to me when I became aware of Pink Floyd than even Dark Side was, I think, in some ways. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I'd agree with that. And um, as a result, I hear what you're saying musically, but I do think, you know, if you're talking to a 13-year-old kid and saying, 
let's see if you're into Pink Floyd. Yeah. And it's a kid who is listening to music for connection. There's, there's a, as you said, sonically, there is a sound of isolation in this album that comes through. And I could absolutely see someone connecting with it from okay. that. Now, for me, who didn't need that narrative, right, or, or connect with it as much, or for somebody coming in later, I, I look at it from a music perspective, and I'm like, this isn't as sophisticated as the stuff that I <laughs> right. like of Pink Floyd. And so as that's why this is my least favorite Pink Floyd album we've done, because it's just sort of there, right? And I'm not against concept albums, by the way. I know, Josh, that's more of his thing. My, I'm not against a good concept album. I think for me, it's the lack of the lack of sophistication in music at times on this compared to other Pink Floyd albums that kind yeah. of doesn't bring me in. And the fact that half the songs feel to me like narrative devices. Yep. Yeah. I think, yeah, and I, I was talking more of, yeah, and I'm, I am talking more musically. And I think to me, you know, knowing me, like I, I'm looking at, at the songs as music, musical pieces. And there's, I just remember when I first heard this, I'm like, man, there's some harsh stuff going on here. There's some stuff, there's some discordant stuff. There's some things that are a little challenging to listen to and to, to enjoy where we are like an album, like, you know, wish you were here with shine on your crazy diamond. Wish you were here was a, it was an easier. Listen, although welcome to the Sh machine can be a little bit harsh, but still there's, there's aspects of that that are, that were to me were easier to listen to, but I agree with you. Something like another brick in the wall part two, um, you know, run like hell, uh, hey, you comfortably numb. I think there's there's certainly individual songs in here that are a good en entry point. But the fact that it's a double album, the fact that it's got, you know, some of those, you know, that 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 Roger Waters voice, which at times it's like I would say it's not good, you know, yeah. um, that mm -hmm. that can make it harder. But I, I your point's taken. I could maybe it depends on the well, person. Um, for me, I, I would not want it to have been this. This I was actually wish you were here was the first album. And that's what kind of brought me into the Pink right. Floyd world much more than and this kind of this drove me away a little bit, actually. And I was kind of like, what's the big deal with the wall? Well, it's like as an album, it's not as enjoyable <laughs> for me. And that might be why I was driven away from Pink Floyd, because mm. this is what I got first. And it's like, uh, no yeah. <laughs> and like and it's um you know all pink floyd albums have space but this album doesn't have as as much space as mid-70s pink floyd um mm -hmm. in terms of the, the yeah. sonic palette um That's, but yeah. yeah if you were to ask somebody name a pink floyd song they probably name another brick in the wall part too yeah. don't they yeah that's the and first then the one second songs they yeah. probably name comfortably numb yep. right yeah and then maybe what money Wish you were here, perhaps. Wish you were, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. So two yeah. of the songs that common people think of, yep. You know, like who don't know it, would be those songs. I mean, certainly, I think another brick in the wall part two is. The I mean, first that, song that another brick in the wall has to be their best, their 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 best selling single. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, you know, do the numbers behind that, but that's yeah, that one was a, that's a big that was a big single for them, you know. And that's what I'm saying. So if you go off that idea, when people are like, yeah. oh, what album's that on, and then they get to this one, yep. So yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So, uh, anything else on this record, Josh, I'm sorry, Josh. man. I'm sorry. You don't, you don't like them. Hey, I've, I you can't say I haven't listened to their albums. At this no, point, I can't. So. <laughs> I, I can't. am, I guess, pleasantly surprised that I, mm. I, I think have been the most vocal about my non-love of Pink Floyd, but, um, testament to going in and testing your biases because, uh, yeah. there was a lot more I liked than didn't like in the Pink Floyd run. So, um, 
perhaps that's the lasting legacy of this podcast for me, that I can't use that lazy characterization of myself as uh, anti-Pink Floyd anymore. I'll have to find a new band to say is my anti-band. Rod Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's still yours, Josh. I think, yeah. I think there's some others that... Uh, I'll have to find along the way. Well, but. it's it's and it's also possible we might not be done with Pink Floyd because uh-huh. uh, they're hanging on in the uh, they're like at ninety four in the nineties with the the, the uh, division bell, which is a decidedly different Pink Floyd than oh, because there's no Roger Waters there's there. There's no so Roger Waters. We, might, right, we yeah. might get to them. But speaking of Roger Waters, I'll just do a quick postscript here. Um, they actually did do one more album with Roger Waters. It's called The Final Cut, which was released in 1983. This was completely written by Roger Waters, and that's what people feel like is really the is is a Roger Waters solo album. Um, the uh, Waters, they he and Gilmore were really butting heads here. Gilmore wanted more time to write songs to cr- contribute. Waters refused and said, "Nope, it's going to be this." Um, the, each of the band members kind of afterwards go on to re- release a solo album. Um, and they actually Gilmore, Mason, and Waters go out to dinner in 1984 to discuss the direction of the band. Gilmore and Mason leave this meeting thinking that, okay, we're going to keep going on. And Roger Waters leaves the meeting going, okay, the band is over. So their communication <laughs> skills are pretty terrible. Um, Financially so, and communication. Yeah, exactly. So this basically result it leads into a two-year battle, uh, you know, between you know the Waters and uh, and the two others. Um, there's some court involvement. There's press releases that are done. Um, Waters wanted Pink Floyd totally disbanded. Um, and eventually there's an out-of-court settlement that that was reached, and Pink Floyd did continue on without Roger Waters. And um, uh, and so, yeah, so they continue to do music in the 80s. Not a whole lot. They think they did one album in the 80s, and then they do the Division Bell. So we, uh, we might get to that because, um, like I said, that's still hanging on in there. So. Um, Really, just ended it in the 70, 79, huh? Almost. Yeah. I mean, well, eighty four. I mean, they were still around, you know, technically. Yeah. But you know, I don't think Rick Wright ever came back into the fold until after Waters left, and uh, and then yeah, then they came. They they, they were still Pink Floyd, but that wall never Roger came Waters. down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. so there you go. All right, John. So we're in segment number three, and that's actually fitting thematically because it's the third Clash album that we're doing. We've previously done the self-titled debut and give them enough rope. And this is London Calling. Uh, Let's go ahead and play a clip here for you to hear a little bit. In the opener, you heard Spanish Bombs, and now you're going to hear Guns of Brixton. When they kick at your front door, how you gonna come? Okay, so before I go into a briefer bio, because we've we've covered a lot of the history right here, Matt, why don't you go ahead and run the numbers for me? So London Calling comes in at number five in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums, number one in 1979, number 18 of all time. It is uh, The Clash's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums, and it also made Rolling Stone's list coming in at number 16. So I think this is another certified banger, John. Another certified banger and another double album as well for those that may not have listened to this. So let's go to the basics first. London Calling was released uh, on December 14th, 1979 by CBS Records in the UK. It is released in 
the uh, United States in January of 1980, and that is why it ended up uh, on the Rolling Stone charts for both best albums of the 70s and the 80s because of the different release dates. Um, it uh, was a bona fide success in the UK. It was a top 10 chart success, and London Calling was a top 20 single. And it also was platinum in the United States, which was not always uh, something that was part of the narrative for The Clash before that. Um, and so this was, I'm not going to say it's their breakthrough in the U.S., but it was definitely the album that sort of shot them uh, up the charts. Um, we've talked quite a bit about The Clash's history in previous segments on uh, the two albums that I mentioned. So we've talked quite a bit about The uh, Clash in previous episodes. Uh, so I'll give a brief bio that leads into this one. And we're actually going to do Sandinista as well. So um, I, I won't wait for that. Too, yeah, that's three albums. <laughs> Triple album. Back. We should just yeah. do a Sandinista <laughs> week, John. <laughs> yeah, really. There you go. So uh, one of the things that stands out uh, about The Clash in this time period is, and you heard it a little bit on Give Them Enough Rope, but this is where they decide to broaden their musical horizons. And boy, they don't do anything half-assed because no. they broaden their horizons to all kinds of stuff. Uh, but one of the main things that was a through line on this album is that when they toured the U.S. for the first time ahead of this album, uh, they were choosing very interesting supporting acts in front of them. They actually had Bo Diddley at one point, as well as a couple other classic R&B artists like Screamin' Jay Hawkins and Lee Dorsey. Um, they had The Cramps, who's a punk rockabilly band, open. And then they also had a an artist described as a neo-traditional country artist, Joe Eli, as well ahead of this. I guess that's a, a long way of saying that they got really into the roots of rock and roll during this period, which mm-hmm. um, thematically you will hear both in the lyrics and the sound at different times. Uh, they also separated from their manager, Bernard Rhodes, who we talked about quite a bit in the self-titled uh, album segment. Um, uh, it was I, I didn't see too much that it was an overwhelmingly acrimonious split. I could be wrong about that. It just sort of in met in all of the research I did. It just sort of said like the time had come for them to move on. Um, so I got the feeling it was a little bit of a difference of opinion in terms of uh, sonically where the class wanted to go and maybe what he kind of wanted to continue having them do. Um, and so. Basically, they arrive in May 1979 with no songs written for this album at all. Not one. Uh, they, both Mick Jones and Joe Strummer, um, the two primary songwriters, had both gone through a period of significant writer's block. And between the two of them, they didn't have anything. So the recording of this album is basically they got together and they built themselves a schedule. And an actual schedule. And what this schedule was, was they would rehearse in the afternoon followed by playing soccer together, or they said football sessions, uh, during these uh, recording <laughs> things. They would then go have a couple beers at a local pub, and then they would do a second recording session in the evening, sometimes into the early evening hours. And that was how they did this. They were pretty disciplined in terms of doing the rehearsals because hmm. I think they kind of realized that this was their chance to sort of ascend to another level. Uh, another thing they did was they, uh, it was just them. They kept everybody else outside of it um, as they experimented with stuff. And I think part of it was they wanted to have an open palette in terms of trying out different sounds sonically without sort of being judged or having people's input. And that is kind of a little bit of the background uh, of how London Calling was created. Um, right. I also al- want to say, John, I saw in Rolling Stone that they, they, they mentioned that when they were writing some of these songs, they were doing so in Joe Strummer's grandmother's flat, which I yes, thought was interesting. Like- yes, some of, <laughs> yep, some of them were there. 
Yeah. Hey, Grandma, and, uh, <laughs> can we use your, use your attic? Like, Anyway, go ahead. But uh, for those that don't know much about uh, the classic terms of their uh, composition, Joe Strummer writes most of the lyrics and Mick Jones composes most of the music. So uh, and that does not change on this album. Um, this also marks the beginning of Paul Simonon's first credit, which is The Guns of Brixton, which he both uh, wrote and sang on. Huh. So it's his uh, first time singing and he was originally doubtful, but uh, he actually was encouraged by Joe Strummer to work on it, and it ended up on the album. Now, he would write and sing on other songs down the road, too, but that was the first. And, yeah, um, this album was pretty much immediately critically acclaimed um, by pretty much all the critics, uh, regardless of uh, what album they were writing in. And also, it is the rare album that was in its time regarded highly, and then retrospectively, uh, probably even more highly regarded than it was even at the time, and it was highly regarded at the time. So thematically, it, it you probably have figured out it is about London. Um, a lot of the songs are in London, about what's going on in London, which is a, a common theme of segments we've been doing uh, recently. There are discussions about violence. There's political songs, multiple, like four or five political songs. Uh, and there's also things about getting older and sort of the climate of... Uh, joblessness in England at the time and other sort of adult themes. There's a couple songs about sex, albeit, you know, in a punk way, you know, which is never about like glorifying it or, you know, conquest, right? It's more about uh, like Lover's Rock is about safe sex and family planning and, you know, sex in the construct of a relationship is, is, is also there as well. So uh, that's there. And yeah, and the amount of inspirations musically, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it in here, but there's there's upwards of almost uh, 12 to 15 different genres of music that are touched on on this in terms of by design. Um, yeah. Now, whether or not they were successful, I guess that's up to you guys to share with the listeners. So I think this one starts with Matt. Matt, thoughts on London Calling? Yeah, so this is another album that I actually did know pretty well. Um, years ago, I bought it when I was kind of going on a, a, a kick of, hey, I need, to, I need to listen to these albums that are supposedly like the best albums of all before time. Before you so. die. Before I die. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I did my own list of that. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I really like this record. Um, I, the variety, absolutely, that's what stands out. I, was, I remember when I got this, I was like thinking, the Clash are a punk band because yeah, that's here, but that's there's a yeah. whole lot more here than this is not a punk album. This is just an album of all kinds of stuff. Um, it's interesting that you said the Bo Diddley, John, because there's a lot of Bo Diddley beat going on in here. In some ways, and it's and sometimes it's very it's like more of a subtle. It's not like the you know the in your face kind of Bo Diddley beat, but it's but it's there nonetheless. And um, there's several songs like what is it, Hateful and Rudy Can't Fail stand mm -hmm. stand uh, stand out definitely with that. Um, so I always like that. So there is kind of like that, uh, homage to old school rock and roll, uh, you know, and, um, you know, the brand new Cadillac, that's the second song that kind of has that spy versus spy kind of like the B-52s had that den and then and then and then like whatever that is. So, um, so that was kind of an interesting song it's like there. like surf guitar, um, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's, that's what yeah. I wrote down. That's a good, yeah, that's, Beat that's track. probably a better way of saying it. I, for some reason I think of the spies, but, um, and I think there's ska on here that I do like. Um, there is. Yeah, because what is it? Uh, uh, Wrong and Boyle is definitely a ska song. That might be the most ska song on here. I don't know if you guys would agree with that, but that's. I think I was mm. taking that away from that. Um, Rudy Can't Fail has a little bit yes. of the ska thing going on. Mm -hmm. And well, interesting. Rudy, one of the, is it, by definition, is a ska term. So Rude yeah. Boy. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. There you go. Um, and it's the right profile is kind of interesting because uh, there's horns in that, and I, I love that song. That's that's a deep cut for me on this. I, I really I, that's a that's a great uh, upbeat kind of mm-hmm. danceable song, but it's slower. And one of the things I noticed, it, it's got the horns, but the the strumming of the guitar is done is done on the downbeat not on the upbeat. So usually like ska is more of an upbeat kind of a thing. And I, and I was well, listening to that. Well, that's reggae. Downbeat. Reggae would be the downbeat. Is it? So I thought ska was too, though, just done faster. I think sometimes, Matt, when oh, you wait, hear reggae's horns, on the downbeat, you think right. reggae's horns, just horns. But yeah, reggae's on the downbeat. That's right, reggae's on the downbeat, song. ska's on the upbeat, yeah. right. So, yeah, but, yeah. But, so, so the right profile's done on the, on the downbeat, and I like that, and I like reggae better. So I'm, it's kind of interesting. I was just thinking of that when listening to that song, and I'm like, for some reason... That style of music with the horns and kind of like the upbeat kind of danceable nature, I'm I'm going to gravitate towards that much more on the downbeat than on the upbeat, which is interesting because I'm not always well, averse to upbeats on and in, in, in parts of songs. But to maybe, to me, maybe, Rudy can't fail is a rock steady song more so than it is a ska song. Okay, I, 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 that's a whole other thing for you to. Yeah, ponder, it, yeah, yeah, probably right. But I'm just saying elements of it. But I, Wrong and Boyle, I was definitely that Scott, and I like that song. Um, so I think I think a couple of things. I think the downbeat I definitely like better, and I think that you know, um, I was wondering if something like uh, you know, uh, the right profile, if that was that could have been done on the upbeat, and that would have been more Scott. Maybe I wouldn't have liked it as much. I just thought that was an interesting you know kind of thought that I had. But um, so uh, and it's just got freaking guns of brixton okay this is like how is that that's that that's like the hip-hop sample here right like that's that baseline is freaking fantastic and it's so it's so different that stands out as kind of a unique song on this um on this record for me i love how it ends with train in vain i think that that's a really good that's like a it's kind of like a pop song almost you know it's like it it, well, it, it very it on really yeah, I mean yeah. it's it's it sounds a little bit it's a cleaner song. It's not as edgy, I would say, but it's a uh, it's um it, it definitely adds adds texture to this record. So mm-hmm. there's just so many songs on here. The, the the card sheets another song that I really like. Um, so I I don't really think there's anything that I'm down on terribly. Lovers rock. I'm a little lukewarm on. Uh, to me, I don't know the music just isn't there as much at the the chorus. And for some reason, Lost in the Supermarket doesn't do a whole lot for me either. Oh, man, There's parts of it that they do, but the chorus, not as much. Um, but those are minor minor complaints. Overall, I think this album is, is great. Um, and I love the variety. I love the edge. Um, I love the vocals, you know, the the, 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 vo- the voices, you know, the the, uh, um, the singing voices of Strummer and, and Jones. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting record. And it's clear that they're trying to be more than just a punk, uh, you know, punk band. I, I read somewhere that they were you know kind of feeling like at this point punk is becoming like an, an, like a passing fad almost but almost just kind of like it's it, we got there's got to be more to it than this right because it's a very since it's so minimalistic that there's only so much you can get and do with it before it starts to you know wear out its welcome a little bit and so it's nice to see them kind of like going in this direction of just let's let's take that and expand it into a variety of other ways and they do it really really well so uh, mm-hmm. thumbs up for me on this yeah, I mean, I've heard this album before, but it's been a while, and what a great, what a great album. Uh, I agree. It's it's really kind of the variety that they bring that is the strength of the album, and song after song of singability and listenability all the way through. I think probably Lovers Rock, where I started being like, okay, that's that's enough, and that's like fifteen songs. So the and and all of the songs sound different, and like Matt said. They incorporate 
the ska throughout, which I love. They incorporate horns um, very well, and they kind of, they kind of punctuate songs, and it's not overdone. They like uh, "Lost in the Supermarket," which I do like. is kind of like an '80s song almost that I or '80s like hit pop hit, and and like you said, this album is. Kind, I think this. I don't know if it shows growth, but it shows their ability to to expand their sound more they've kind of as we've said they've kind of always been doing this to some extent since the beginning but in a way that like they're really confident on this album in in maintaining their kind of core identity and that punk rock spirit without being really a punk rock album i i also agree it's i was surprised it's not really like a punk rock album in the way that their first two albums are it is more expansive and probably accessible um, as as a result and I think that's kind of why this is the hallmark you know album for them the there's something on here for everyone I feel like if you don't like this album there's there's something wrong with you there's there's uh you didn't bring up Spanish Bombs which is a fantastic song and I like that they incorporate the uh the actual Spanish dialogue there's a lot of songs to bring up I mean yes that's true 19 of them I'm just gonna name all the songs yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) the uh what else uh Strummer like you said John they they're still bringing the political um, perspective and kind of statements into it right from the from first song with London Calling, which is kind of like an apocalyptic song in a way that mm-hmm. they're going to get blo- London's going to get blown up or they're going to get drowned. Uh, but they're it's about the nuclear war. Yeah. Yep. And the um, and they're I don't know. Th- this is just a really great track. Uh album and i appreciate the the breadth of it and their ability to um to experiment i i think i like when mick jones he sings as well on this right john not only does he write the music yeah uh, five or six tracks he like lost in the supermarket he does card cheat Mm. uh uh, he sort of most sings with strummer and clamp down um oof. uh rudy can't fail he sings yeah. on yeah there might yeah. be another one in there too yeah. i guess point being i like that he he sings as well that kind of bring breaks it up a little bit because strummer's voice as we've said is not like the strongest. Oh, train in vain he oh, sings okay. train in vain yeah and he yeah. sings i'm not down okay um oh oh uh, i guess he does yeah okay so he yeah he um he brings a a freshness to it as well uh, death and glory i'll name that song i think that's a great deep cut song i love that song mm-hmm. and this this album is uh one of those albums that's worth uh worth re-listening to i think there's something to it. it's going to be really high on my year-end lists and it just makes me appreciate the clash more listening to it this time yeah, I mean, this is number one in my '70s list. It's no doubt. I mean, it's this. I'm the class oh man, you band. tipped your hand, John. <laughs> and why, why? I mean, why even be? I mean, this is. It's been on. It's they've been Matt and Josh have been very positive, but like I'm gonna go more effusive on this. I oh, mean, John, here amount, it comes. Here comes the O face. Well, the <laughs> amount of well, the amount of artistic growth. The amount yeah. of artistic growth from 1977 yeah. to 1979 here is pretty remarkable considering that you remember the clash like kind of just picked up their guitars 
you know, <laughs> two mm-hmm. and a half years ahead of this. And I mean, often the story is told about the Beatles, right? Like, but the yeah. Beatles were gigging for years before. Yep. They were doing this. These like guys half just of their career, it. half of their career. They well, were, and Joe Strummer was yeah. kind of playing right before the class got together in 76 ish, 77. I mean, because really, if you remember, they kind of started playing and then a few months later they had a deal um, because of yeah. the scene they were at. To think of them as sort of a band that started as a rudimentary punk band and then gets to this is yeah. remarkable. Um, on so many fronts, A, they're, they maintain the tightness of a punk band, but in all these different genres. B, they can play all of these different genres without seeming like they're appropriating from them, which is difficult to do. Mm-hmm. C, they write incredibly good lyrics for these. And, and all of this is a, is a germination period of about three years, right? Which is incredible. Yeah. Um, I can't think of a band that would have put an album this accomplished together in this small amount of time, you know what I mean, as, mm-hmm. as musicians, basically. Um, so that's kind of remarkable. Um, I, I, I think it's also amazing that this album's a double album and it, it never gets tedious, like, at all, till the yeah. very end, to the point that you get to train in vain that they tack on and it's... You're just like I, I. For me, I, I could still go four or five more songs. Um, it's 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 excellent in that, and I mean the first, I, I the first two albums of this side one and side two. I should say on album one. I mean, yeah. Oh, it's like I don't know. If they just I don't it. know if there is an album that I like better from track one through ten at all, yeah. right? Than that, I don't know. I I don't know if there's an album I can think of. Um, I mean, it, it, toward the end, it loses a little bit of steam, which is probably why it might not be my all-time favorite. Um, but it's it's not far from it. And um, you, you guys touched on stuff that's there, the, the reggae tinge and the ska tinge to a lesser extent, the, the rock steady slash, you know, what would become, you know, reggaeton, different stuff is, is there as well. Uh, what has been undersold a little bit is certainly the roots rock and roll. I mean, they're kind of doing what Bruce Springsteen always tries to do a little bit, you know, like take it back to the roots of rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a reason I know Springsteen's a huge Clash fan because a lot of what they're doing here is kind of, I think, what like Springsteen like does for certain people. But this lens of it is just so much more <laughs> appealing to me than some of that lane. <laughs> Uh, there's also, uh, as we get a, a high there from rain right in the background. <laughs> Sorry so. about that. Josh, feed your dog. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I also want to mention that uh, there's a new wave vibe to this at times as yes, well. Yes, yes, you're right. Yes, absolutely. And that's a, a genre you didn't mention. And it's, you know, it's not, none of these uh, genres dominate the album, which is why right. I love it so much because there, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there wasn't a new wave and uh, another um thing that we didn't mention is there's a little bit of jazz on this album too. Yep. Um, Jimmy jazz, you know, comes in at just different stuff like that as well. So they're genre hopping and they are, it's just so easy to genre hop and be cliche or contrived or just misfire. And I think what's remarkable is they just don't misfire. 
in the genres they're in, and they do, they um they pay homage to them respectfully. Mm. Um, and I think that's because they themselves explored it from the standpoint of wanting to learn, as opposed to just taking from it, you know, without. Mm-hmm. And that that goes into the 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 punk and the classes, you know element right and that's they, they maintain their clashness while doing it which is i think why yeah. they can do it yeah. because they do it in a way that's about learning and respecting as opposed to just oh i like this thing and let me hear it and who are the people that do this oh okay. like even though they had bo diddley open for them you never in a million years go oh wouldn't it be cool to get bo diddley because he's the r&b guy i think it's more like they picked him along with others because it's like we we're on this kick of listening to this stuff and here's who we like. Mm. And I, I think it's the same way with uh, the delving into reggae. And it's, it's just such an interesting way to take the British scene that we've been talking about from say 76 ish to now, as we start the eighties, it kind of really does scoop up everything in terms of influences and put it into album format and synthesize it. And I think that's what The Lasting Legacy is, one of my favorite periods of music, the the late 70s in England, right? And this is sort of like the magnum opus of all of those things rolled into one mm. uh, by a band that's at the peak of their powers and is just so tight. <laughs> like yeah. as a band, they're just really, really tight. If you watch performances of them in this era, it's they're, they're just an, an awesome thing to see as a live band they sound great and so yeah i mean highest recommendation this album's fantastic if you haven't listened to it listen to it it's hard for me to believe that someone who has a palette of music maybe beyond the the pure pop um or or like one genre specific um preference could not like this album yeah because there really is the only thing i can think of is maybe someone might not like joe strummer's voice Mm -hmm. but i mean you're really reaching if that's keeping yeah Yeah, this is great do you think that like with an album like this because i would agree it does it does not to say it wears out its welcome but you know the length to me it is noticeable um not that i'm like oh i hope this is over soon it's just like it does kind of it it loses a little traction towards the end and i I wish it was like a 13 song album instead of yeah. You know, longer, I, well, and but. I'm wondering if like um, if that's because really I think and I agree, I think the first half is is, is, is stronger than the second half. Um, but I'm also wondering if if that's just, you know, it's, it just suffers from the length of it. Right. If if, if, they, if they release this like the Use Your Illusions or whatever, that there were two separate albums list or it means London Calling A and B or whatever. Right. Volume one, volume two. And you would just maybe if you were able to separate it like that would that make it even better, you know, because sometimes I well, think that long albums do, and we're going to come across that because there's albums as we get, but then I'd lose wrong and Boyo and death or glory or training. No, you're not Bane losing that revolution you're, rock. Yeah. No, I'm saying that that take all those songs and just put them in a, a separate, like, you know, yeah. like, uh, London calling volume two. It's still its own album, yeah. but you would listen to it maybe separately. Not all you would listen to it as a whole, as opposed to, I the, the, would agree with you half. on Sandinista, but not this one. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, it's I mean, just interesting yeah. because we're going to be coming. There's as we go into this in the '90s and stuff. There's albums that are like single albums that are like 70 minutes long. You well, know that's what I mean? one of the so, things you notice. Yeah, the, yeah, the albums get because expansive. of the CD. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Um, do you think? Do you think they? I mean, they're they're clearly one of the 
the best like punk rock bands of this era, if not bands in general, do you think they kind of lost any of their, not cred, but do you think they were better as a punk rock band or do you think this was kind of the natural inevitable evolution for them? I think like a lot of bands like this, that they just weren't meant to burn bright for a long time, which people forget about bands. And sometimes certain bands are meant to run well, the, I mean, the class technically went into the mid-80s. They made that god-awful Cut the Crap album. Um, they made, you know, after this, it's Sandinista and then Combat Rock, um, which was their biggest selling album in the United States uh, by quite a bit. And I think features interesting, much like Pink Floyd, features probably their two most well-known songs yeah. um, on that album, which also serves as the album that longtime fans of the band are like, oh, that's when they sucked. Mm-hmm. While there's another whole group of people that probably first experienced the clash through Rock the Casbah, which is right. how I did. Now, I will say this. I talked about teenagers and, and adolescents hearing an album like Pink Floyd The Wall and connected to it immediately. That's my experience with like this album. Yeah. Like I, I listened to this for the first time when I was 12, and it's like, these guys, these guys are me. These are, this is, the, these are me. These people write about, write in a way I like sonically. They delve into the sounds I like. They write political lyrics that even if I wasn't all the way in on them yet, I knew that I liked lyrics with a little bit more bite in them than, you know, love, 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 mm-hmm. or, you know, sex, 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 or, you know, it just was sort of, I, I realized immediately and viscerally that this was both a sonic palette and an energy and like a level of intellect that that was going to connect with me. So it was interesting to listen to this album the same week that we listened to The Wall because I know a not insignificant amount of people who that album was their version of this for them. So, huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. So and there's think- other albums. It's amazing how many albums from this late 70s period are sort of those type albums for me. Were they like ones they that immediately- just immediately resonated with me yep you know whether it be uh you were actually not going to do this album i don't think but uh you know early some of the early police albums or we'll get to the police we'll do later ones um you know uh the specials album i've talked about at length before um that buzzcocks album um you know some of these were ones that i uh, blondie parallel lines those were all albums that hit me all at once and I was like I don't this all's around that period and that period's awesome so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. well I'll be, I'll be interested I don't think I've I've not listened to Sandinista I don't think I listen to Combat Rock so I'll be uh interested I don't think we'll do, we're gonna do Combat there. Rock oh I'll listen to it on my own I guess you gotcha it's an easy go, listen it's yeah. an easy listen well, Sandinista, are we doing that? Because right now it's 105. Oh, actually, it's in Rolling Stones' list, so we're going to cover that. It's in Rolling Stones, so we're going to It's just barely out of the 80s right now. And Combat Rock's 134 in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And Cut we the can... Crap's probably like 9,000-something. Cut the Crap is 1,731. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, the no, there's no Jones in that. It's just it's a mess. And I think they've, both, they've all disowned it as well. So Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all right. Your, you can't always hit, John. No. What's your favorite track on this album? Because I know we've listed like Ooh. 17 that we Me? liked. But <laughs> yeah, Spanish Bombs. Spanish yeah. Bombs is my favorite, yeah. I like Hateful a lot. Um, mm-hmm. That might be up there. I, God, I think I it changes every is. time I listen to this album. I <laughs> could agree because it's been different ones at different times for me. Yeah. 
Clampdown's been there for me at times. I can't Guns say. I can't say. I can I can say that the songs that I liked the most that were kind of like I don't know ones that I hadn't really I, I liked I liked the the card sheet a lot and I like um, the right profile a lot too. Hmm. So maybe 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 I'd go with one of those two. But all right, it's hard to go wrong. You can't really go wrong with that question of this record because you could make the argument for just about all of them. So yeah, no good good stuff. My highest rec. Yep. All right, we are down to one episode left, fellas. One solitary episode before uh, we leave the 80s a little bit of a 70s. run for, or 70s yeah but geez oh man i'm already in the 80s i guess um a little bit of a, a piece of info though for our fans we are going to finish the 70s next week and then we're going to take a one-week hiatus to prepare uh you know some information and maybe a few changes to the format a little bit for the 80s so mm. little teaser there in terms of what you may be getting to hear or, or not aware that you're going to hear. So do know though that we, yeah, we will do that album and then we will take a week off uh, in terms of preparation before going back. But you know what, Josh, why don't you share what next week's episode is going to be? All right. So the, the big grand finale, we're covering, you know, somebody we've been covering for a while, Neil Young and crazy horse with rust never sleeps, not available on Spotify. And, we're covering Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures, and then we're capping it off with our top tens of the decade and our superlatives that we will come up with and finalize on that. So exciting episode. I'm always I'm always looking forward to the list episodes. So And you yeah, run that segment, out. Josh. And I think I do. Uh, and Matt has Neil Young, right? And I have Joy Division next week. So no, I, I have Neil Joy. Young. Yep. Oh you okay. Yep, you well, don't. Have you don't have a. Uh, you don't have a album to cover. Ooh, okay, so that's lucky. Lucky break we'll, for me. Then maybe we'll figure out. Maybe you'll just lead the top ten list. We'll see. Oh, you did such a good job TBD. though with that, Josh. And it is your deal. So we'll, we'll TBD exactly. We'll John could take. Up. John could take a week off. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. That's what alphas do. They delegate stuff to others. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, with that being said, I think we're probably at the end of the road right now, as boys to men would say. So uh, for our boys to men, Matt and Josh, uh, this is this is John. I, I have a feeling Matt's going to make a joke about the, the base guy, as he always does. We talk boys Baby, to men. But I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. but, I didn't mean to cheat on you. I just couldn't <laughs> help it. <laughs> that old lady was so hot. You should have seen her, baby. All right. I think that's enough right there. So for next time, this is uh, John for Matt and Josh. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you at the finale of Season 2 of the 70s of Combing the Stacks. Take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to the Combing the Stacks podcast. We're now available to be liked and followed on 10 unique platforms, including Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Feedback is welcome at combingthestacks at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at the handle at combingthe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks. 